This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Uh, Ankh Ujasaneb, Nubians. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Ujasaneb, indeed, indeed. Life uh, and health. Life, uh, prosperity, and health. It's good to see you. Hey, how you doing, bro? Good to be seen. No, I was just, you know, uh, basking in the conversation we had before. I, I clicked go live, you know, about the, the changes that have happened in my life because of the presence of you in my life. And I was like, that's the goal, you know, to run into somebody that can shift you in such a way so that you can change, so that you can be changed, so you can change the what needs to be changed, you know? So I know that's right. <laughs> I, Well, I feel the same way about you. In fact, it's interesting because, uh, you know, those folks who are not yet in Nubia and not yet in narrative, you know, we're undertaking beginning Monday, a month long conversation with and listening to Octavia Butler. Thank you for that, by the way, Prof, because it, it sent me back to her and uh, just, I mean, remarkable sister. But, you know, she talks about change being God, God being change. And I think that may have been one of the first things you said to me when when she entered, whispered in your ear and said, come over here and sit with me for a little while. So, I mean, I thought about that in the context of our goal. Um, what are we after? And you, like, and, and you added that seventh, which is really the framing question from, you know, our sister Sonia Sanchez, how do it free us to that Africana studies conceptual category framework? And it, it, it sent me back 20 some years to when we started Philadelphia Freedom School. And we used to always say when we were in community with these young people and these teachers and parents and community folk, our goal is to get rid of freedom. I Meaning what? No, this shouldn't be freedom school. This should just be school. This is what should we be doing. And so what you stepping in as you did and willing and then working incessantly to create this space. And then in the middle of a pandemic, when we're not going back, that's why I love that, that hashtag. I love that phrase, Nubia, the new normal. As people, you know, are not going back to these buildings, are not going back to these places. And you know, I was I was all around D.C. yesterday. I was in and out of the Martin Luther King Library and some other places and looking at those huge steel and glass towers with dark windows. Yes, it was a Friday, but. That ain't it because it also on Tuesday, those windows are dark. <laughs> and also, and did you see um, Elon Musk threaten his whole work stay? I, I was I was sitting somewhere drinking some coffee. I busted out. Oh, here it is. This was yes, was it yesterday? Thursday. No, no, come, come on back. I ain't gonna be. He said, pretend to work somewhere else. Musk warns Tesla office shy staff. Elon from, Musk. From his, from his home. He sent that, right? Come on now. <laughs> I was watching you and Drew. Beach or something. Yeah. Talk about this because I mean I, I was watching you and Drew talking about talking about Drew McCaskill talking about profit and building institutions for one or other purpose, including life purpose. I'm wondering if this came into that was, the a, that was a precursor to that conversation. Uh -huh. that was, yeah. But that's why you know when people clip dive on YouTube, you know, it's like and they think they know the show. I, I watched some clips. It's like, no, there's no. a developing conversation. And here's a nine minute or a 10 minute or a 12 minute. You might get 20. You know, here, here's a clip from a larger conversation from a three hour show that's Monday through Friday for the last almost eight years. So it's interesting, you know, and it's just like reading, you know, you you flip through the middle to a book and you don't understand, you know, you you can go to the end of the book. You can you can understand some things, but the 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 
you know, the development of a story, you mm. got to be there for the beginning, the middle and the end. And I think, you know, too many of us skim. We skim through life. We skim through the paper. We skim. That's why, that's why, oh, the media's got us twisted because the clickbait headlines and, the, you know, you can skim through, you read a headline, you think you know the story. That's Sometimes right. the headline has nothing to do with the story. Nothing. And, and even in digesting people, you know, watching clips on YouTube is not, you ain't getting the full story of what this is, which is why, you know, we put the clips to bring you in. And in, in our case, and this is why I love with, uh, I was talking with Sunyata. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was over at uh, at um, uh, at Calabash. Yes, in fact, I'm I'm tripping because you know what I got in my mug? Some of that Octavia Butler <laughs> that she didn't that she didn't conjure. But uh, I'm and talking to about seeing if we can get some sort of glass mug with Nubia on it or narrative because when you put that Octavia Butler in and you add a little something, you you saw it. She sent you the joint, right? And you put the lemon, and it yeah, that's alchemy right there. That's Stop playing that's magic. You know, I kid, I kid her. I walked there one day. I was like, "Where is the witch?" And then she was all, she's like, "Who is that?" Call? Oh, okay. Hey, what's going on? And she came out. But I mean, we could call it chemistry or alchemy, as you say. And when you put that lemon in there and that thing turned purple, I was like what? How did you even conjure? It's like George Washington Carver. I'm a scientist, but I went out there and the plants told me what they could do. I know what they could do. I talked to them all the time. But I, I'm raising it because though these points of entry, whether they be short, like those clips that you post on youtube from three hour five day a week conversations or you know sunyata inviting people in over to the other side or even what we do here which may be an hour and a half two hours two and a half hours on saturday but yet really what we're doing in nubia is where and and you're grateful you know people are saying oh wow this is great i'm learning so much yeah but now and coming up this month Starting Monday night is another example. We are going to walk line by line. And by line by line, we don't mean close read line by line. We mean as folks are reading and thinking, we're going to have a conversation with Octavia Butler. And we're not, you know, and, and of course, numbers are important in context. But in the context of what we're doing, like what we're doing here, this is very important because we know we're reaching people beyond people's capacity to but but in that space that we are invited in inviting people in we're talking about not just hundreds now we're going up in the thousands and so when uh baba uh Kweku, you know brother larry and mama labisi joined us to close out martin delaney and blake on monday night on memorial day that's a conversation that won't be had anywhere else in the world because it was a world conversation about not only a figure, but a text that can only be had in that place. And I guess what I'm raising is what, just to emphasize what you said, these hours that we spend together, including office hours on Monday nights and then Tuesday with the Metanature class with Dr. Beatty and, and, and Saturdays and Sundays, really Sundays live with Dr. Ahmed. just started a money class on Thursday. This is we're just getting started. And but what it does is stretching those hours are now part of a rhythm. And I know the effect it has had on me. I'm thinking again about Octavia Butler in Parable of the Sower, where she opens up with this concept from John Jennings, because I, I have this is a beautiful like if you, want. Oh, you know what I didn't even pull it. That one at Parable of the Sower and, and Kindred. And John Jennings is one of those people. Man, we as you know, see that's Uraeus's world of all these crazy illustrators and artists and com 
it would be great to get John Jennings in for a conversation. Just looking at Black Comics, the, the piece that he, that he and Damian Duffy, they had two bodies. I have that up there somewhere as well. I mean, he oh, said, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, um, Dr. Nana Yao sent me a copy of it. Oh, yeah, I, Nana Yao, yeah. Yeah, but you know, um, to to Mama um, uh, oh, over, over PC. Mm -hmm. she came in unexpected because we didn't expect it. This, this is the other thing, right? So it's not, <laughs> we're not, it's not a book club. We're not going into. Nope. What we're doing here, and, and this is how I've always imagined narrative and now Nubia is again, the building blocks, right? So we're having a conversation that puts context on what's happening now by reaching back, having the ancestors whisper in our ears about what is, and then bringing it forward so that we can build the future that will. So she, she, you know, her framing of the young, the school, you know, and then bringing in the 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 uh, homeschool the woman that has six kids who's homeschooling, and then I get a call yesterday from Larie, Larie Daniel Favors. She and Brian do a a Saturday school that they've been doing for the last twenty six weeks, and so we were talking because we're about to launch a, a you know young person's version of Nubia, and we've been talking about this for a while, and uh, ironically is is actually Larie's daughter's name, which is. Not a coincidence, I don't believe. But so no, they were doing this work. Brian and she was like, "So I want to bring my brick." And so like, okay, so we're gonna, you know, develop that. But I was like, "We gotta get Mama uh, obese." Come on. No, Ola BC. Ola BC. Ola BC. Yeah. Ola BC. We gotta get her and all of the the people that are in Nubia already doing this because as we send our babies out into this world to be miseducated and. Uh, have their spirits destroyed with people, you know, giving them monkey certificates. Yo, and... shout out. I love it. The monkey award for entertainment. You entertain me. The, and the young boy, you, you might want to spend a second telephone with, because somebody <laughs> may not, may have missed that. Yeah, you said it to me. I didn't see it. Uh, I, I'm so triggered and angry at everything right now. Oh, I'm like, no, I don't, I, I don't I even get mad. The child didn't know. He was happy. He was happy. He came home with that award in Mississippi and he was happy. This is pre-K. And what killed what killed me, Prof, was I'll say what killed me. What what I found fast, one of the many things I found fascinating is apparently, according to the school administrators, they had a meeting before this teacher, this white woman teacher, went to the classroom about not giving out awards that could be seen as offensive. <laughs> so this white lady gives this little black boy pre-K. The Monkey Award. They're all animal things award. And then you see the certificate. We're not going to call the little boy's name or his mama. No, we, you know, it said the Monkey Award for being the most entertaining. Then she said, well, I didn't know monkeys was for metaphor for for, for, for black people. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, give her a pass. But you know why I give her a pass? Because I don't care. <laughs> so, But you know what it did send me to? You know, oh, no, I don't even think I, I probably didn't because I ain't going to talk about it. I just it, it sent me back to anytime we start talking about teachers, I go back to the black schools and clear. We talked, we talked many times about Cleopatra uh, Davenport Thompson, who was a professor at Jackson State, a lifelong educator in Mississippi, K 12 college level, brilliant sister who wrote the history, the history of the Mississippi State Teachers Association. And it just reminds you that that wouldn't have happened in, 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 in well, segregation was bad. Of course, segregation was bad. Anybody arguing segregation was good, but I tell you what, we have lost. We have lost the capacity to teach our own informal education. That's again a child, a children anchored iteration in Nubia follows in and is parallel to and benefits from the momentum of memory. 
from the momentum of somebody like Amama Olabisi, who has spent decades as an African-centered educator who comes out of the African-centered movement. Her husband, Baba Koiku, or uh, Larry Crow, who spent decades in African-centered education, the Institute for Positive Education in Chicago, Haki Mabudi, Safisha Mabudi, connected to those networks. When we saw that violence in Buffalo and now the funerals are going on. And I'm glad that Al Sharpton called Kamala Harris to come up to the, did you see her remarks? She, she gave about maybe three minute remarks, but this is what I liked about it. Evaldi or Buffalo? In Buffalo. They had, it was one of the funerals. And, you know, I, I hadn't seen it either. I tell you who called my attention to it was Roman. Martin, he said, did you see what Kamala Harris said? I said, no, I didn't see. So I went and looked and I saw what he saw. And I think you would see the same thing. Because she was sitting there with the family in the front row, she didn't have a, a, um, a, a, a speech writer. She didn't have. And so when he called her, you know, Reverend Shaw, you could tell she was kind of ma not mad, but like, I just came here to be, why you, and then she got up there and did. Why you going? Yeah, why, why you call me? And you know, it was so funny because again, we talk about, again, that's why we had to have an Africana studies framework. Who are we to each other? If you don't have a sense of Africana language formations, those ways of knowing, you completely missed when she went up, you know, shook his hand, turned to the podium and said, I ain't going to say nothing about Reverend Sharpton this morning. And everybody started laughing. Now, if you don't speak the language, you don't understand that she just egged him. <laughs> Right, you out of pocket for that. Yeah, but, okay. bro, why you say, I just came in and sit with, but what came out of her mouth next, unscripted, no speech, was a little, little different Kamala Harris. I'm saying, I'm saying that if you talk like this all the time with these black people, you know, in other words, you got home train, you know what it, but nobody machined it, nobody saying, nobody worked, and you in a room full of different people, different, but these are black people, and they putting this elder in the ground, and you you weren't prepared to say you were sitting next to the sister. You could see her sitting there next to the elder. And so she was like, I, I really don't want to get up, but I'm going to get up now. You don't call me out. So if I'm up here, I don't have time to workshop how they're going to attack me at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue when I come back. I'm here. And it was a very different feeling. And I guess what I'm saying is that's what Nubia is. I mean, we are stepping out on imagination and memory. We're stepping out on our protocols. We're stepping out freely. As Langston Hughes might say, we're free within ourselves. And what it does is it, it's, it's not excluding anyone, but the only way we'll make progress as a human family, and this comes through in Octavia Butler's work, and, and of course, August Wilson always says this, you got to speak out of your experience, your truth, and you can't do it quickly. It takes time. Let me, so, let me yes, you know, um, you just said something that I hope maybe Vice President Harris is listening to. And maybe somebody that's close to her can get in her ear because when she shows up as authentically herself and not worried about what the social structure is going to say, right. what the media is going to do, because that's probably why this didn't get a lot of wide coverage because I didn't see it. It didn't come Interesting. across trending, right? Because right, because everybody wants to call her not really black and not really, you know, sell out and all these other things. And she just do, does all of this stuff for attention. But you don't spend that much time at Howard and then AKA and all of these things and be your, your whole life black, no matter what. I'm taking you and your, and your sister, your little sister to Kwanzaa's in California in the late that's 60s. Right, right. And everybody says it's not true. Y'all better do a little bit more research on that. But yeah, you, you don't do that and not get that protocol. That's right. 
so you know, so here we are, and um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for this space and I'm, for what's to come with the young people because beyond the safety issue, which we're gonna get into today, safety guns and things, no you know, what is being planted in at, at the youngest of ages? Well, you know, that's the, the you know, no child should have to fight off, you know, white centeredness their whole life to get to a place. You know, I had a woman uh, tell me, you know, she, I mean, she's in her 60s and she's just now, and I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm just now coming into myself and being comfortable with myself. To, it doesn't matter what age you you find freedom, you know, as long as you find it, but that you had, you know, 60 years on this earth and still didn't feel comfortable in your own skin. I had a guy um, in the comments say he was a DJ at, a, you know, all white school or whatever, and he was playing the pop music for the kids and then girl, little girls come up. Do you have any hip hop? Do you have any Jay-Z? Do you have any Beyonce? Do you have... And he says, okay. So he puts it on. Everybody comes on the floor. They know every word, all the oh, cuss, even though he played the clean version. And then and it clicked because he said, you were saying, we sent, I centered them instead of doing what I do. But they are already, you they're know, we're the center. We're the center. They already are part of our culture because they can't. Well, the, the, we, the, we that, the we that they think we are. Right. And I, and I would be interested in seeing, I missed this story, but apparently Eric Adams was calling himself trying to ban trap music, a drill, drill music, which came out of Chicago. And then he had a meeting with some of the cats at the, you know, I mean, there are many conversations going on here at the same time. You know what I'm saying? You can't, I mean, he sounds just like an old head. <laughs> just the, it, look, that music is not the reason that we are attacking each other. However, it's not not the reason that our violence has been enhanced. And you're right. These young people who are not of African descent, who want that, that's who they think we are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, so people, young people say, well, you know, that's our culture. They taking our culture. Really? That's your culture? Getting high, getting in the car, shooting at each other, and then making a song about it because you want to escape the ghetto, the hood. You Escaping the hood? Monday night, when we get into the parable of the sower, and you see those three tiers, I mean, those tiers inhabit all of Octavia Butler's work. That top tier, and however, they're going to be psychics, they're going to be aliens, but there's going to be a hierarchy. At the top, these are the owners. In the middle, those are the people trying to protect and hold on to a little bit, and then the vast majority is just trying to survive. So we get to why you're trying to survive out of drill, but what you're doing to do it has been informed by them people at the top. This this social structure is framed. I mean, Butler does that brilliantly and she does it in Parable of the Sower. So if y'all listen to drill, you love drill, come on, read Parable of the Sower and see where it's going to end up. And you just say, so I'm just saying that, you know, so when they, when them, when them kids ask him to put that music on, I'm like, okay, that, huh, uh-huh. Now, when the music stops, which of them three tiers do you go back to? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if, you, if, if y'all don't think Donald Trump Jr. don't know all the words, of course he does. In fact, who was one of the biggest figures in hip, biggest white figures in hip hop prior to his politics? Donald Trump. Trump. Come on, Diddy. I mean, come on, y'all. I mean, y'all put Trump. <laughs> come on. You know what I'm saying? That's why when he started running, he invited all y'all to Trump Tower. You know what I'm saying? Because this whole notion of opulence is there. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. But now, that DJ to which because you know I was watching, I don't know who it was it, Mayhoff and them. They was talking to, I don't know if it was uh what's the brother's name, the Afro-Latino, um, not Envy, uh from back in the day, the DJ. I mean back in the day, DJ, uh, when we was coming up the golden age of hip hop, 
Oh, there were so many of them. There was uh, Clark Kent. There was uh, yeah, that's not somebody put it in the chat. Somebody put it in the chat. Um, anyway, they were talking. You know, I, mean, I don't even think he was in this sec sec segment, but they were talking about the fact that you can't ban music or cultural production. People are expressing themselves. At the same time, you know the the sources, the experiences out of which people express themselves can be changed and altered. And so, you know, that's that's something we have to talk about. All right. So DJ Red Alert, I don't think he's Hispanic. Uh, no, Kid Capri is. Kid Capri. Oh, that's who you think? Because I don't think he was back in the day. Kid Capri's still around. Kid Capri is still around, but I'm saying they are still around. They got to make money. What else are they going to do? They DJs, right? All right. I mean, so I mean, there was a time, right, where you had to go to the club. In fact, he was making that point. Interesting. I'm talking about governance. He said, you know, I travel during the back in the day. And so when I go to parties, I got to know what they like in Anchorage. I got to know what they like in Houston. I got to know what they like in Amsterdam. I got to know what they like. Because now what you have is because of the commercial nature of these kind of formations, they'll put a program together with four or five or six DJs and everybody playing the same music. And then people get bored. He said, but, you know, when you come to a convening, I'm calling it a convening, you say a party or, you know, a live party, you know, there are going to be some staples that are dropped in there. And that's where we start talking about cultural meaning making, the difference between the cultural meaning making category and movement and memory, just in passing, I'm saying, you know, because in cultural meaning making, you're going to play whatever is local in addition to whatever else is out there because people want to hear their music, wherever you see. That's why he said, DJ, like we don't study. I had to study. But in terms of movement and memory, how did or do we remember experiences? There are going to be certain things that are so powerful that they will move from cultural meaning making, which is whatever the music or the art or the culture is at the moment. They will move into a category that transcend that immediate moment and become staples in a deeper kind of cultural relationship. So all the DJ is going to have flashlight in their repertoire. <laughs> Why? Because George Clinton has moved from cultural meaning making to movement and memory. <laughs> and they're going to be certain, but everybody's going to have, depending on what mood you want to have, you want to slow it down, start slowing it down, then you're going to hear, whoa, hey, you make me happy. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to play a little Frankie Beverly. Right? You know, I want to make sure I'm right before I let go. We are one that you played for us now some time ago. There are going to be things like that. Anyway, I don't, don't want to get too far into that. I'm just saying that, you know, cultural meaning making isn't just about recognizing who we are in any particular moment. And again, Octavia Butler, bringing it back to her, and we'll talk about her in a minute. There we go, Parable of the Sower. Right. That's exactly right. We know that B Butler makes the assertion that the only thing constant is change. If you want to talk about God, it's change. Go ahead. Read. Oh, please go right ahead. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. And I, I want to also come over to another, uh, because as people are digesting this, whether you're, you're on YouTube and you're, you know, just listening and I just enjoy you. There is a, to me, an edict in being in a space like this, that you have to do something. And if it is changing you, then, then you need to not just change, but change the things around you. She also says, a gift of God may sear unready fingers. Ooh. A gift of God may sear. So that means that y'all got to get ready. And if you're not ready, be honest with yourself. 
Maybe you're not ready for this. It's okay. It's all right. But get ready because your fingers will be burnt off <laughs> handling something that's a gift from God that you're not ready for. That's the that's very much the truth. And in fact, I'm glad you did that because we know, and for those, you know, everyone, all our Nubians who are here now, we know that we're going to go from chapter one to chapter 15 uh, Monday night, and then we'll finish the following Monday so we can get to parable of the talents, uh, two of the projected three. And, and someone uh, last week made the observation that before she became an ancestor, and people say it was tragically short. She she, made, she had a fall. Me and Todd Tabley Butler born in 1947, Southern California. Uh, I thought about one of my best recent students, Sienna Ben, who's getting a PhD now back in her native California, uh, from that from that community, from that neighborhood, Pasadena. You know, that's Jack and Mac Robinson, and their mother moved them out there. You know, that's Jackie Robinson territory. You start talking about Pasadena in 1947 may transition in Seattle in 2006, where she had moved in the late 90s, 1999. By then she was the famous Octavia Butler, but always famously kind of private person. Uh, but she had projected a third volume. And I'm thinking now about somebody last week made the observation that um, the, our sister N.K. Jemison, um, in many ways, uh, another iteration and extension of that uh, fighting into the science fiction social structure publishing world uh multiple award winner hugo award winner nebula award winner the great mk nk jameson uh, her father i think they're from alabama i have his book around here somewhere he's an artist a visual artist it was a visual artist and anyway she she made the observation in her introduction i think this was the 2019 edition of parable of the soul where some of you all may have had and, and shout out to everybody who is uh who if you didn't have the book are buying these books from our black bookstores again we made that point last week i you know i was texting with some folk saying kofa they're very happy to be happily overwhelmed with orders and they getting them out getting them out getting them out but in the 2019 edition of parable of the sower um nk jemison makes the observation that there was a third volume in this trilogy so parable of the sower parable of the talents and then parable of the trickster um but of course we didn't get Parable of the Trickster. And N.K. Jemison says, maybe that's better because it requires us to extend that. And it, of course, takes us back to the last. Uh, I love that. About, you know, but but, but the parallels, the ancestors keep talking because remember what Larry said on um, on Monday night in Nubia, we closed out Blake. And I'm just holding up the Floyd Miller uh, edition because I like the cover better. I like the Aaron Douglas joint. So anyway. Uh, the last line in Blake, because remember, we don't have the last few chapters of Blake. They were lost, or at least they've never been, they've been not to date discovered in the newspaper, the weekly Anglo-African, the Anglo-African magazine. These are the two iterations of a Black-owned press and newspaper publication where Martin Delaney published Blake as chapters in this newspaper. He never published it as one thing. Um, and I thought about that in terms, well, anyway, I'll come back in a minute because I actually make this connection between Martin Delaney and Octavia Butler between Blake and the Parable of the Solar Sower, but also bringing M.K. Jemison, M.K. Jemison back in in a second on another even more direct observation. But the last paragraph of Blake or the Huts of America, which we talked about, and if you haven't read Blake, please, you know, put that on your shelf. He says, uh, this is when they're planning the rebellion. They're in Cuba. 
right? Because Henry Blake had been all over the world. He'd been in Africa. He'd been all through the South. He'd gone through the North. He'd gone through. He's in the Caribbean. Now he's in Cuba. They're on the eve of this rebellion, worldwide rebellion. And and, uh, he says, um, Montego, I thank God then that there's still some hope. My lot is cast with that of my race, whether for weal or woe, exclaimed Ambrosina, Ambrosina with brightened countenance. When Gondolier, rejoicing as he left the room to spread among the blacks an authentic statement of the outrage, quote, woe be unto those devils of whites, I say. And Larry was like, I don't know that we need what happened next because we, it's almost like Delaney's like, nah, y'all need to read what I wrote next. What you need to do now is complete it because I don't mean all white people, what he said, woe be unto those devils of whites and their people were and we were in there monday night laughing about that because of course immediately we thought about black rob <laughs> that's whoa when you see something that's whoa it ain't just w-o-e it's w-h-o-a and then i thought about jay dilla with after police you know we don't say he says he said uh he said um we don't say yeah we say whoa in other words we don't hold back we just let go we don't say yeah we just say whoa after police in other words, it does none of us any good as human beings in any society we inhabit in this world to hold our tongues in the face of injustice. So it's ironic that the last sentence of Martin Delaney's Blake, which is a global conceptualization of blackness resisting oppression, it's ironic that the last chapter we have is, a, a, the last chapter we have ends with woe woe to them that will try to continue this oppression and so i mean and the other the only thing i was going to mention is actually this is actually in um let's let's go with uh octavia butler <laughs> I'm, uh, and thank you nk jemison for making that observation about you know the third book that didn't get a chance to appear and i know she's not the only one but um yeah i'm not a let's go with octavia butler this is a speech that octavia butler gave called The Lost Races of Science Fiction. This is 1980. It's republished in a book that uh, Gary Canavan did on Octavia Butler. And, there, and if you wanna, I mean, there are several good books if you wanna read about Octavia Butler, in addition to, you know, you can go on YouTube or anywhere else and see her talking. Um, Consuela Francis did an excellent called Conversations with Octavia Butler, which is very good. And I'll tell you though, at this moment, one of the ones that I really have enjoyed is by this sister Linnell George, this journalist. She had a book called A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia Butler. That's a great photograph on the front, and a great uh, piece of artwork. The thing yeah. I love was that the thing I love about Linnell George's, and you 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 actually talked with her. I'm glad that you got a chance to talk with her. This is a sister, I think she wrote for the LA Times for a while. She went through the archive. And apparently, which gave me great comfort, personal comfort, Octavia Butler saved everything. <laughs> saved everything. So at the Huntington Library in California, um, there are at least 9,000, a little over 9,000 individual pieces of Octavia Butler's things, notes, everything, little bills of sale. I mean, she kept everything, her little notebooks and report cards from when she was a child um, in close to 400 boxes. And the finding aid alone to the Octavia Butler papers, the finding aid alone is 500 pages. 
just to what's in there in terms. So what Linnell George did over the course of years was go through the archive. And what you see in here, and I'll just give you a quick, here's a quick example. What you see is um, like at the beginning of chapter four, uh, what would you do truly if you were not afraid? She's got an example, for example, of, you know, bills, telephone bill. You know, she said, you can learn a lot from people. And I'll just go, this is one of her early journals that she put together. A pink notebook as a child. She had her pens in there, had a little ID. She had cut out a page, uh, a picture from somebody who was in the movies and stuck it in here. This is what she wrote in. And so she goes through marginalia, what little Octavia Butt was writing, where her mama would bring home things, including some of the early science fiction books. You know that she 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 wrote something in one of them. She said writing is a form of gambling. Still, they never told me not to write. And she goes on, and of course, her family called her Estelle because her mama name was Octavia, but Octavia E. Butler was her the daughter's name, and they call her Estelle in part to distinguish her from her mom. But anyway, Octavia Butler's now, and I'll end with this and come back just on this moment because we want to talk about this in the context of violence and what we've seen so far. Octavia Butler says this in this speech um this speech from 1980 called lost races of science fiction she says um more important than technique however is for authors to remember that they are writing about people that's what this book does Linnell george's book does a handful of earth a handful of sky it's not about her books it's not about her it's about her it's about her process it's about her becoming it really is a kind of, and, it, and what Linnell George does, I think does a particularly good job of is she gets out of Octavia Butler's way. So you get the feeling that you're going through the papers. It's very effective and, and, and it's written in a way, and you know how, how, how you journalists do, Prof. You write in a way that everybody can read it. Mm-hmm. A child can read this. And that's another thing I love about that book. I mean, I, I'm kind of suspicious when folk get so jargon-esque that can't nobody read it. I'm like, what you hiding? You know what I'm saying? And Octavia Butler styles like that, but this is what she says. He says, more important than technique, however, is for authors to remember that they are writing about people. Authors who forget this, who do not relax and get comfortable with their racially different characters, can wind up creating unbelievably, I'm sorry, unbelievable, self-consciously manipulated puppets. Pieces of furniture who exist within a story but contribute nothing to it. Or stereotypes guaranteed to be offensive. Now, you know, Martin Delaney's not a novelist. He's writing Blake almost like a political tract. But one of the things that emerges in the novel Blake, which is why I think, for me anyway, it's the most important piece written by an African in the United States in the 19th century we have access to. There's no tell about all oh, the slave narratives. Did you read Blake? No. Well, then you don't, you know, don't come to me showing me all these slave narratives because Martin Delaney didn't write a slave narrative. Martin Delaney wrote about who we are to each other. And even though the language is, can be difficult in moments and it isn't really a novelistic form, what does come through in Blake differently than a lot of these other things that are written during that period is the humanity of Black people, the, the arguments, the agreements, the passion, the feeling, and much of it as we know and then learned again and learned even more from uh, Baba Kwaku and, and Mama Olabisi on Monday night much of it was based on Delaney's firsthand research. When he's writing about Africa, it's because he was there. Martin Delaney went to Africa in 1859 and spent a year sitting with Africans. So when he's writing about the enslavers and what they did, 
He is literally bringing back stories. He traveled through the South as an African who was not in chains, who was in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, who had, whose mother had moved in from, West, uh, from what is now West Virginia. He went into the South during enslavement and went from place to place listening. He had traveled all over. He knew the people, as Larry made the point Monday night, uh, that he said Frederick Douglass knew the struggle. Frederick Douglass knew enslavement. Martin Delaney knew us. Martin Delaney knew the community. He lived in Canada. Remember, he hosted John Brown. So when you're reading Blake, you're reading people. Back to the end of this speech by Octavia Butler, she says, there was a time when most of the few minority characters in science fiction fell into one of those one of these categories. In other words, kind of political, racialized categories. People writing tracts. One of the first Black characters I ran across when I began reading science fiction in the 50s was a saintly old, quote-unquote, uncle, end quote. I'm not being sarcastic here. The man was described as saintly and portrayed asking to be called uncle. Think about Song of the South. Zippity doo dah. Some of y'all watch that cartoon. Y'all know what it meant. Or better yet, let's not even go back to the 50s and 60s. Let's come back to 2022. Insert your favorite. I don't know what you talking about. <laughs> From Netflix or network television. Anyway, continue. It says, the man was described as saintly and portrayed asking to be called uncle, whom Harriet Beecher Stowe would have felt right at home with. I suspect that like the Sidney Poitier movies of the 60s, Uncle was daring for his time. That didn't help me find him any more believable or feel any less pleased when he and his kind, Charlie Chan, Tonto, that little guy that swiped Fritos, were given decent burials. Times have changed, thank heavens. And science fiction has come a long way from Uncle. Clearly, though, it still has a long way to go. As, as I was reading that, you know what I thought about, Prof? When she said Harriet Beecher Stowe would feel at home, I laugh. Why? That's why Delaney wrote Blake. Harriet Beecher Stowe had written Uncle Tom's Cabin. Delaney is like, cabins? <laughs> Blake or the Huts of America, a story of United States, Africa, the Caribbean. That What are you talking? Oh, I'm sorry, Harriet. I ain't mad. You're writing to the social structure. Who are we today? You try to engender sympathy. You are a friend of the Negro. I understand an uncle for you. But for me, Martin Delaney wrote a letter to Frederick Douglass and said, hey, man, that's your friend, right? He, I'm putting it in our comment. He said, Harry Beecher Stowe, your friend, right? He said, yeah. He said, okay. Now, y'all, you know Josiah Henson is living in Canada in poverty. That's the dude whose real life story she took to make uncle. I, I thought it was Linda Brent. No, Linda Brent comes later. Uh, 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 Slave Girl. Uh, 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 Slave Girl narrative. Slave Girl, right? No, Harriet Beecher Stowe. I thought she. I thought they talked. I thought she talked to Linda Brent. Well, well, was she absorbed? That's the thing. She absorbed from a lot of sources. But okay. Josiah Henson's story. That's in fact during the period they called Josiah Henson the real Uncle Tom. And then later, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes a novel called Dread, a tale of the Great Dismal Swamp. Where she starts, you know, and, and then she writes another one. There's another one called The Keys to Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, I want I won't even go over there and try to find all that stuff. It's up there on the shelf. But I'm raising this because Delaney told Douglas, hey, more power to her. It may even help. But is she sending money to Josiah Henson? Because uh he should be able to tell his own story. At least he should get some money of it. Douglas ain't writing back. <laughs> but I'm saying here Octavia Butler is saying y'all seen that same uncle in the science fiction of course he did now but we still got work to do and I'm thinking to myself my god one of the motivating factors for Martin Delaney writing Blake or the Huts of America Uncle Tom's Cabin shows up in a speech that 
Harry Beecher Stowe said, yeah, that uncle, I seen that uncle. And you know what? Harry Beecher Stowe be right at home. And I thought to myself, I don't know, uh, 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 Mama Butler. She might not have been right at home because uh, Martin Delaney gathered her in the 1860s. <laughs> about that. So anyway, I just thought, I just, I mean, there are no mistakes. The ancestors don't make any mistakes. But uh, let's think about this in terms of since we've been together last week. This is our regular Saturday convening, part of this larger universe of space. And one of the things that Linnell George chronicled beautifully, again, one of the things I love about her book, A Handful of Earth. In fact, she takes the title of her book, A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, from Octavia Butler, because that's what Octavia Butler said. Um, in fact, let me just read the quote. It's from the first, look, she got her little, uh, you see her, uh, this is a page from one of her calendars. This is from January, 1983. Sunday the 9th, right. There's a shop for food. I'm telling you, this book is book up, book up again, Dr. Carr. Because yeah. this oh my god. And I can't wait for our um our t-shirt drop with her because oh, you know, yes, art that, that art is nice, but our art is even nicer. Mm. I mean, and we gotta we gotta nice. celebrate this beautiful woman. Open, no open, that, no open that up because I, I have a journal. You know, anybody that writes, you have to have you have to have a schedule. I'm you, you're gonna so feel you're gonna feel like you write with her, prof, because that's exactly I'm sure your journal looks like this or something like it. Well, every day, Monday. Messier. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, that's that's your I mean, this is this is it. And and of course, you see her struggling to pay the bills and never had no money. She she's got documents in here from when her mama bought her her typewriter. And the family was like, what you getting that child a typewriter for? She don't need no typewriter. Look, she this when I tell you Octavia Butler saved everything, here go the box with the typewriter ribbon, and she done wrote on the box. <laughs> I'm saying it. Here goes a little uh, tab here where she says, writing paper for early drafts and carbon, three packs of 300 sheets each. She taking notes, and she said, but here's what she said. It's where the title come from. She writes this. This is what Octavia Butler says. What good is thinking and creating and imagining and getting off the beaten track, off the narrow, narrow footpaths of what everybody is saying or doing whoever everybody happens to be this year? Science fiction is a handful of earth and a handful of sky and everything around and in between. Mm. I mean, so when we think about what we're doing, I mean, that very deliberate naming you gave us of Nubia. And I love the fact People say, well, is it spelled N-U-B-I-A? No, it's spelled K-N-U-B-I-A. Is that K for Karen? No, the K is silent. Okay, well, what does the K mean? Well, the K is going to distinguish. It's going to be something new or something very, very old. I think about the, the motto of Black Classic Press, Paul Coates. He said, a very new press with, a, with some very old ideas, right? And narrative is that K is silent. But remember, and everybody in the Metanetra class knows this now because y'all know how to spell and write and know the glyphs behind and the concept behind Amun. One of the things the Egyptians would say, the ancient Egyptians would say in prayer is that it is Amun, although unseen, who is the source of all life, power, and health. And when you say the K is silent, <laughs> that's no different than I think about in Odu Ifa and the Yoruba. They always add a one to the constellation of, um, when we talked about this, when we talked about Black is King a long time ago, right? The constellation of I'm not going to say gods, the constellation of spirits, the constellation of guiding forces, the, the constellation of Orisha. You add the one, why? Because the, the thing over the set 
signifies the unseen thing, the one that animates all of it. Now, you may, you may call that a European uh, Western epistemology or ways of knowing, again, simplifying. Um, you might call it a baker's dozen. What's a baker's dozen? Well, a dozen is 12, right? Okay, you got the muffins, right? Well, there's a little left over. Okay, well, who does that go to? That goes to the one that made the 12. It's, the, it's not extra. It is the thing itself. <laughs> so, I mean, so again, the K is silent. Yeah, the K is silent because it's animating the whole concept. But it, in, in Nubia, you know, we think about, and in our formations, even folks who are not yet in that, in that other space where we get deeper into this and really open up, because I'm really looking forward Monday night, as in every week, but especially now, to what people get, what we get, what folks got and get and think and thinking through with Parable of the Sower. You know, her, it's so funny because she's only working. She said, I would rather have a part-time job where I could barely pay my bills if it gave me time to write then have a full-time job where I have more stuff, but I can't write because the thing that is the most valuable in life is time. And so us convening, spending time, we talk about spending time. We've even commodified the concept of spending time. No, we experience time, but how you choose to experience time is a very important moment. And so again, this just in this, look at what she said. She says, right. And then she says, shop for food. Uh, and then she says, one hour each math and biology. She's studying on her own. Uh, Octavia Butler uh, went to community college out in LA. She signed up for classes at Cal State LA. She did a couple of writers workshops. Sam Delaney, the science fiction, fiction uh, uh, writer, was in at one of the workshops teaching. But she didn't do a whole lot in the classroom and she didn't do writers workshops as such. She taught a few of them later on in life. But she was really about writing about her craft. Monday the 10th up at 4.30. One hour review. Half an hour each to math and biology. Tuesday the 11th, do homework for a week. And then she look what she got. Finish it. <laughs> you got to finish it, right? She says, uh, goes on and says, oh, says that this spot she's going to opens at noon. Wednesday the 12th, up at 4.30. Thursday, probably work day. I mean, like going to work, having to pay that job. Thir what she say? Thursday the 13th, right, math bio. Friday the 14th, right, math bio. Saturday the 15th, right, right, math bio. In other words, she's scheduling this. And people say, oh, you got to schedule your life. You got to schedule. You got to make time for yourself. I tell you, Butler was deadly serious about that. It comes through in her, in her craft. Um, but let's talk about this question of violence. We've had another violent week, huh, Prof? It may seem like we're switching, but you know how we do. We're going to bring it all in for landing. Uh, right? And yeah, I just bought the book while we, while oh, we were talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I, told, I told people saying, Cope, I said, yeah, y'all got this right. She said, yeah. I said, she said, uh, the people, the buyer said, yeah. I said, well, make sure y'all stock this up because again, it's too, it, the nail George doesn't get in the way of Octavia, but she lets her stuff tell the story. And that's what makes it so beautiful. You know what I'm saying? It's almost, anyway, I don't get too deep into it. But yeah, this, this week is, um, Iowa, um, oh. yeah, yeah. And you then Tulsa, you've been talking about Tulsa now for a couple of weeks. And the brother lost his life because this cat says his back still hurt. Bought the a gun, hours, yeah, black man bought the gun hours before, had back surgery, killed the doctor, and a bunch of other people and himself. Um, yeah, something, you know, I, I reached out to um, 
Reverend Dr. Haynes. Um, Freddie Haynes, yes, my man, Brother Haynes. I, I said, bro, we can we do a, a Revelations lesson series? You know, because I feel like if we're gonna do parable of the sowers, power, power of the sower, power of the talent. If we're gonna do that, we also probably need to have a Christian religious study about Revelation. He said, well, you know, I don't, I, 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 I won't do it the way you know. I was like, I'd expect you not to do it. No question. In fact, so, I talked to Jeremiah Wright a week ago after we finished Saturday. He texted me and said, Call me. I called. So he was he was walking me through stuff. I mean, I'm just saying, look, Freddie Hayes, Jeremiah Wright. Again, we don't want we don't want Karen Hunter and Greg Carr. We want Freddie Haynes. <laughs> and, and of course, we see Octavia Butler's character, uh, uh Laura Onika arguing with her father, who's a minister. You know, like, what do we say every week? We ain't ministers. Come on. Hey, look, you got our brother, Freddie Hank. What'd he say? He gonna do it? He said yes. So yes. Um, stay tuned. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, but this is how we, you know, connect the dots, build a bridge away from, uh, away from the colonized way in which we receive our spirituality, the way many of us hold on to it for dear life, like it is lifeblood itself when it's really killing us. It is killing us the way that we are relating to God the way they have taught us to relate to God, the way they have stripped us of our black magic, our magic, the thing that makes us connected to God, turning water into wine, raising the, the dead, doing moving a mountain from here to there. All of those things, we could do greater things that God, Jesus told us that than he did. Why aren't we doing it? Because you allow somebody to tell you that that's evil. You allow somebody to tell you that that's of the devil when really that's the one thing that's going to probably free us all when we plug into it. And that's some, some of the stuff that... Uh, we see in these books that Octavia Butler wrote. A lot of it, a lot of it. And she talks about that. I mean, you know, we'll talk a lot more about that Monday night about how religion is often just basically, in fact, she has, you know, one of uh, Laura's brothers say that to him, you know, religion is just so, uh, so adults can get you to do what they say. I mean, and there is this mother may I version of it. And we certainly see it in, in the contemporary world in the U.S. with this white Christian nationalism. It's not Christian at all. I mean, you know, if Reverend Haynes was with us right now or Reverend Wright, they would be the first to say, that's not Christianity. If David Walker said that, <laughs> it's not Christianity. Mariah Stewart might say that. I mean, it was, it's not Christianity. Harriet Tubman, who was a stone cold AME Zion. <laughs> but she would say, that ain't that. Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman, for sure. No question. Martin Delaney, when he's got Henry Blake arguing with his mother-in-law and enslavement, we're going to pray. Say, yeah, I prayed. I still pray, but I got to act. Now, and I'm gonna get you out of slavery too, you and your husband. And then he does it. I mean, it's bigger. And so, yeah, I mean, when we look at the violence we're having now, the John Henry Clark used to call Christianity and Islam male chauvinist murder cults. In fact, he said all these Western religions are male chauvinist murder cults. In fact, John Clark wrote the introduction to a book we'll talk about again just for a moment today in passing, uh, when uh, Haki and them put together in third world press and republished Negroes with guns, Robert Williams. You know, this edition, which was published in 73, uh, this edition, the introduction was written by John Henry Clark. And John Henry Clark said this, he said, man, John Clark, man, you know, I knew John Clark, a lot of, along with a whole lot of other people. But I spent intimate time listening to Clark because I wanted to be a, a teacher. 
And I knew that he was a master teacher. And of course, we all knew that. But, you know, when you're a teacher, you're a younger teacher and you're spending time with a master teacher, you sit there and listen. You ask questions and then you just sit there and listen. And Clark had a way of distilling things that people could say, well, you've overstated the case. Really? Prove me wrong. He writes in the preface to Nick Rose with Guns, Robert Williams, he says, my point here is this. European people within Europe and in the broader world outside of Europe have always maintained their power and control with a form of protracted violence. The humanity and naivete of African people seem to have always interfered with their understanding of this point. Now, that don't mean that Black people weren't violent, other people weren't violent, but it does mean that the social structures and formations that we see coming out of Europe over the last thousand years, certainly the last thousand years, certainly the last 500, where we got pulled into this damn settler state practice that they messed up the whole Western Hemisphere with. And yes, they messed up the whole Western Hemisphere. Yes. And if you claim to be heir to that lineage, if you claim to be proud of it, critical of it, but ultimately proud of it, then you too, you too are in the crosshairs. Why? Because you have a choice. You have a choice. You don't have to uh, identify with that. But when they're talking about the violent way of knowing that animates songs like Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War with the Cross of Jesus going on before, we're talking about the a different kind of spirituality. Again, Octavia Butler has her characters arguing about spirituality so that she can get to the point that you're going to, we are the ones who put the shackles on each other. Don't blame that on God. Don't blame that on God. You understand? But anyway, the intimacy of violence that we experience now, whether it be these older heads in hip hop worried about drill music, whether it be Eric Adams, a, a cop who carried a weapon, who backs the blue, uh, not uncritically, but still backs the blue, the blue itself being coming out of enslavement and the paterola tradition and in terms of hierarchy, class hierarchy, suppressing the, the lower class on the at the behest of the owners in a, in a capitalist society. You know, all of those things, all of those formations ultimately are shaped by a social structure, as John Clark says, that is born in and maintains its hierarchy through violence, sustained violence. Now, that doesn't mean that violence won't exist in any human social relation. Again, Octavia Butler bringing that up over and over again in her work. But we have to understand that whether it be, uh, you know, Uvalde where you see, Uvalde where you see the cop fails, of course the police fail, they're human beings. Well, yeah, they're, they're human, so we should give it, cut them some slack. No, no, because y'all up in there and one of the people who y'all kept out was the cop who's on the school district police force, who is the white, who is the husband of one of the women that lost their lives in there, one of the teachers. You kept him out of the building too. He'd have gone in there. Why? Because that's his wife. Damn, this uh, uh, this uniform should get me in there with my gun to try to end this violence. Yeah, no, nah, you stay out here too. What the hell? Well, what good is this gun? I mean, the whole idea is, and people say, well, guns don't kill people. People kill people. That's exactly right. So, Taking guns won't change anything. What the hell are you talking about? Those two things are not co-equal. That's a non sequitur. You went from one thing to another thing. People kill people because of the field of violence 
these settler state formations where you have literally said, not only is it okay to kill people, we want you to kill people, just kill the right people. And then overlaid in that are cultural assumptions that say that certain people can never escape being killed. I mean, if you kill a monkey, you'll feel bad because the monkey's kind of entertaining. When you start giving little black boys monkey certificates for being entertaining when they're five years old, that's the same little black boy you don't feel bad killing because if the monkey turn around and you fear for your life, and you might fear for your life, uh, shout out to all you punk cops involved because y'all fear for y'all lives. Y'all cowering in one room while the child calling 911 in the other room. So we know that you punks, but your punkishness is amplified by the fact that you're only human. Everybody should be scared, but you like to stand around with your uh, hands stuck in your thumbs of your belt with all your weapons on it, just like you watch the cop shows and you got you seen with your police vest on like this in this kind of affrontery of, 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 of humanity. Uh, and somebody in Nubia, as I was scrolling just before we started, you know, we asked what people are reading, what you're thinking about. Somebody dropped, of course, the great Gil Scott here and Stacy. Uh, Stacy Ford dropped Gil Scott Heron, uh, of course, his famous song, Gun. Everybody got a pistol. Everybody got a 45. The philosophy seems to be, sure as I can see, when other folks give up theirs, I'll give up mine. This is a violent civilization. In fact, Gil Scott Heron said, this is a violent civilization. If civilization is where I am. <laughs> In other words, Gil said, it's a violent civilization. If civilization is what I am. Octavia Butler writing Parable of the Soul. And then those writing about Octavia Butler in the Parable series says that, you know, when she's talking about the deterioration of civilization, understand the concept of civilization simply, among other things, is when individual human beings come together to build a consensus on what a society should look like. Well, what happens when you have a society where there's a radical inequality and there's a hierarchy and the people at the top want to stay at the top. Well, they can't let those people at the bottom, which is most of the people, have a say in what the society looks like. And at the same time, if they go too far in the direction of oppressing and suppressing what those people have to say, those people will end up toppling the hierarchy. So you got to let them in just enough to manage. And of course, what she does in Parable of the Soul, and we'll talk about this Monday night as well, and then we get into Parable of the Talents, of course. And this actually would be good to get to get Freddie, to get Reverend Dr. Haynes to talk about, because of course she takes the metaphor from that, um, the parable of, you know, those the, the seeds that the three people get. And so the sower, the talents, the third one's supposed to be the trickster, which would have been interesting. We're going go with that. But the idea is it isn't just about the seeds that are being planted. It's about the, the soil in which they are being planted. A society, can you fix a society whose soil, not literally, although now literally global warming and so much, which we see make a at the center of parable of the sower, but whose soil, whose conceptual foundation is rotten. What can flourish out of that? And so the field of violence is where we see the intimacy of human violence, person-to-person -person violence, which has always been with us, kind of given ground to flourish. So is that exclusive to whiteness? No, it isn't. In fact, you know, I was thinking, let me see if I have, uh, let me see. Um, I was, oh yeah, here we go. I was reading, <laughs> this is James McBride's novel, Deacon King Kong. 
and we know James McBride, the brother who wrote the good Lord bird, you know, it was the John Brown thing. And when they made into a movie, uh, the water is white. Uh, he did the James Brown book. I really like that one. In fact, that's the last time I saw him. I went to see, see him read from that kill him and leave. But let me read. Uh, this book came out in 2020, a couple years ago. He says, this is, this is, this is, this is the beginning. This is the brother Deacon King Kong, James McBride. He says, Deacon Cuffy Lampkin of Five Ends Baptist Church became a walking dead man on a cloudy September afternoon in 1969. That's the day the old deacon, known as sport, known as sport coat to his friends, marched out to the plaza of the Causeway Housing Projects in South Brooklyn, stuck an ancient 38 coat in the face of a 19-year-old drug dealer named Deems Clemens and pulled the trigger. That's intimate violence right there. Remember that scene in New Jack City where the preacher shot uh, Wesley Snipes in the chest? <laughs> Again, why you shoot that man in the chest? Because Nino Brown has got all these drugs in the black community. This is black people say, see, black people kill each other. Look at all that black on black violence in Chicago. Hold on, hold on. Eric Adams is like that drill music in Chicago. Now it's in New York. We're going to ban drill music. Hold on. Hold on. The old head hip hop people like, I, I get the sentiment, but you know, that's what y'all said about us. Yeah, yeah. And then old heads say, yeah, but we wasn't. I mean, some of this stuff is off the chain, man. I mean, yeah, okay, okay. But what is the ground in which this violence is being planted? Because remember the racialized element, the same thing where you would give a little five-year-old boy a, a damn monkey certificate for being entertaining in Mississippi is the same thing that would drive you to say that I'm going to take a gun and shoot black people in Buffalo. And write a whole manifesto about it. And my hero is the white boy that shot and killed nine black people in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, and Mother Emanuel Baptist Church, uh, AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Yeah, okay. It's what about this other thing that happened in Tulsa? That was black on black. Yeah, it was intimate. The man said his his back hurt. It still hurts. So you shot this brother. You shot the white woman. You shot the receptionist, the other lady. You out here because you could get a gun. So well, we got to go get these guns. Joe Biden shows up on Thursday night on TV and says, we're going to get these guns. This got to stop enough. And so therefore, we need 60 votes. Hold on, bro. You still talking like this is a nation. It's not a nation. I understand why. Because you're myth making. But the point I'm trying to make is this field of violence, this ground that is planted in is ground where the problem is the social structure, how the problem expresses itself is going to take the shape of whatever intimate connections or non-connections people are making. And in James McBride's case, he gives this, he starts this novel with this old black man in Brooklyn shooting his drug dealer. He goes on and says, there were a lot of theories floating around the projects. It's the wild old sport coat, a wiry laughing brown skinned man who had coughed, wheezed, hacked, guffawed, and drank his way through the cause houses for a good part of his 71 years shot the most ruthless drug dealer the projects had ever seen. He had no enemies. He had coached the project's baseball team for 14 years. His late wife, Hetty, had been the Christmas club treasurer of the church. He was a peaceful man, beloved by all. So what happened? The morning after the shooting, the daily gathering of retired city workers, flophouse, bombs, board housewives, and ex-convicts who congregated in the middle of the projects at the park bench near the flagpole to sip free coffee and salute old glory as it was raised to the sky had all kinds of theories about why old sports coat did it. Sport coat had pneumatic fever, declared Sister Veronica Gee, the president of the College Houses Tenant Association and the wife of the minister at Five Ends Baptist Church, where sport coat had served for 15 years. 
She told the gathering that Sportcoat was planning to preach his first ever sermon that upcoming Friends and Families Day at Five Ends Baptist titled, quote, don't eat the dressing without confessing, end quote. <laughs> Christianity, I love James McBride. In other words, <laughs> you know, just because you go to church don't mean that you promote the full humanity of everyone at church. That's what Octavia Butler's main character, that's what Laura's arguing about with her daddy. She said, I got baptized, so he just, you know, it was easier than not getting baptized. And I know y'all believe that. Shit. But by the time we get through the, the 15 chapters, we're going to go through Monday night, we're going to see what happens to her family. We're going to see her on the road with a new family. As then we, then of course, next week, we'll, we'll see where they end up. But the point is this, just professing a faith doesn't mean that you are living up to this notion of life, community, you know, these, these deeper values, which is why the old deacon that shot the drug dealer in the face was saying he uh, killed the drug dealer was like uh, um, uh, Veronica Gee said he was going to preach his first sermon next Sunday. Don't eat the dressing without confessing. <laughs> anyway, I won't read too much more. I'll read one more paragraph because then she goes through uh, then what, what McBride does is as there's in, 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 the, in the courtyard of the projects, he brings into this conversation is why the old man do what he do? A Pan-African Gavini, because it's Brooklyn. Africans from all over the world, second, third generation immigrants, whatever. Now they all from Brooklyn. Where Brooklyn at? Well, technically in Holland, social structure. But the Brooklyn we talk about, who is what is Brooklyn to us? It is at one time the second largest city in the United States before they merged Greater New York. But more importantly, the whole damn Caribbean and Africa is Brooklyn. And all the Negroes that migrated from the South is all in Brooklyn. So, so he talks about all these different characters he's introducing. But I'm just going to read one, one, one from one of them uh, a couple of pages later. He says, but it was Dominique Lefleur, the Haitian cooking sensation, who lived in Sport Court's building, who best summed up everybody's feelings. Dominique had just returned from a nine-day visit to see his mother in Port-au-Prince, where he contracted and then passed around the usual strange third world virus that floored half his building, sending residents crapping and puking and avoiding him for days, though the virus never seemed to affect him. Dominic saw the whole stupid travesty through his bathroom window as he was shaving. He walked into his kitchen, sat down to eat lunch with his teenage daughter, who was quaking with a temperature of 103, and said, I always knew old sport court would do one great thing in life. <laughs> the whole point so when you got a gun that's an extension of you now whether you are Spanish shout out these, these Spanish kids after you shot your grandmother who used to work at the school whether you're a black dude because your back hurt and you shot up a black man a white woman these receptionists are, whether you're a straight white nationalist who goes to Buffalo and slaughters people and your heroes include a little white boy who's still alive, who to, who his friends, and yes, you're his friends, you damn patterollers, took the McDonald's after you killed all these black people in Charleston, South Carolina. Yes, you're his friends. Because don't say you weren't his friends. These, you, you know you know what I'm saying? Just like some of y'all were the friends of that murderer in the elementary school. Why? Because you got parents, your knee and they back while they children getting slaughtered outside. You wouldn't even let the Latino cop whose Latino wife is in there trying to protect these little Spanish kids come in there and he on your damn police force. So don't even try. In fact, the police chief, aren't you? Anyway, that blue got you blinded. But the point is that all of that is an extension of the people behind the uniforms, behind the weapons. James McBride, I just thought it was funny because James McBride in this fictional account called Deacon King Kong. And of course, that's just the opening of the novel. Then you go through all, you know, who this guy is. And he's really about community. It's about, but it's also about violence. 
Because there are people who would cheer that. There are people who would support that. As I told y'all before, when Sonia Sotomayor came to Howard Law School shortly after she'd been sworn in to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States, and she said, when I was a prosecutor in New York, I like to get people on, the, in the, you know, either old black people or people from the Caribbean, because they would say, you know, yeah, lock them up. This person terrorizing our community. And they wouldn't say it because they hated the person. They would say it because they thought they were doing the duty of black people, black and brown people. It's very important to understand it. So that, that field of violence, that social structure, we have to understand that there's a dimension of it that is who we are to other people, but there's social structure, but there's also a governance dimension. Who are we to each other? And that's where we bring in Robert Williams again. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time with Robert Williams today because we know that Robert Williams, we talked about Robert Williams extensively, Nick Rose with guns, Robert and Mabel Williams, you know, who were over the Monroe branch of the NAACP. Robert Franklin Williams, right? There he is. Wanted by the FBI on the FBI's most wanted list. Robert Franklin Williams, born in Monroe, North Carolina, trained as a machinist in the National Youth Administration, attended West Virginia State College for Negroes. Shout out to the hidden figures again. And Johnson C. Smith University, North Carolina. Former member of the Monroe Unitarian Fellowship, Churchman, Union County Human Relations Council, oh, interracial cooperation, and a former president of the Union County branch of the NAACP. He was the first black leader of modern times to advocate armed self-defense on the part of black victims of racist violence. Now, you got people, I got friends, we got, we, we it's, it's Nubians, you talking to them, listening to them, who, you know, going out, get gun permits, carrying the strap to the grocery store. They got children to protect. In other words, we don't know. I was out yesterday, downtown D.C. And I'm standing there, just going to read across the street. The bus door opened. And I heard this cat from the back of the bus. I'm outside the bus. Talking to the bus driver. Open the door. Back door. Back door. Now, the front door opened. But the back door wasn't open yet. Back door. In the moment, you know what I was thinking. Shit, where am I going to duck? See, this is the edge we're on now. You don't know who got the strap. You know what I'm saying? This man's back hurt. So he went and took out the doctor. A brother who has spent his entire life in service. When you read his, his biography, like, man, you just you didn't just harm this brother. You took his life. You didn't just harm his family. You harmed his community in Tulsa. You understand? Everybody, so... You don't know now. Somebody raised their voice? <laughs> you don't know. This is what Robert Williams wrote in the prologue to Negroes with Guns. He says, why do I speak to you from exile? He says, because a Negro community in the South took up guns in self-defense against racist violence and used them. I'm held responsible for this action that for the first time in history, American Negroes have armed themselves as a group to defend their homes, their wives, their children in a situation where law and order had broken down where the authorities could not, or rather would not, enforce their duty to protect Americans from a lawless mob. I accept this responsibility, and I am proud of it. He said, I have asserted the right of Negroes to meet the violence of the Ku Klux Klan by armed self-defense, and have acted on it. It, it, what, it has always been an accepted right of Americans, as the history of our Western states proves, that when the law is unable or unwilling to enforce order, the citizens can and must act in self-defense against lawless violence. I believe this right holds for Black Americans as well as whites. And we talked a lot about Robert Williams before. <laughs> but you see what he said there? The history of Western states? Oh, man. Where's my man? Here he is. I just got this. Uh, 
This book is 600-some pages, including the index. Gerald Horn's latest book just came out. The Counter-Revolution of 1836. Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. This book, what has Gerald done now? Now, you know the Counter-Revolution of 1776 takes us into the settler violence that created the United States of America. But the Counter-Revolution of 1836 what Gerald does is establish firmly that Texas shovel mouth Texas talking about the governor right of Texas right now Texas is where you see the kind of cementing of this settler violence in a way different than the rest of the whole all the rest of the states and so when robert williams said as the western states show that wild west mentality that mentality that's in texas that mentality that that could be overrun if people would all register to vote why because abbott and that cartoon character lieutenant governor he's got I mean, you, it's like you, you put a blow-dried wig on a prune. I, I'm trying to understand. Well, you get to, first of all, I've never seen a white prune. I, anyway, the point is that those cartoon characters <laughs> are being elected with a fraction of the white nationalist party, which is a fraction of the electorate in Texas. And people simply have checked out. I'm not voting. You're not voting? And I'm so appreciative of the fact that you not only We've not only had that conversation about Malcolm and the Ballad of the Book, but then you took it into those three-hour-a-day blocks with that wider universe that you in, that global majority that had that conversation about the Ballad or the Bullet. Malcolm is helping us try to understand that we didn't create the violence, but we inhabit the violence fully. And that in many ways, politics is just another form of violence. Except... Just like people say, I'm going to get me a gun. Well, you should get a ballot too. Why? The ballot is the political gun. Go read Fred Hampton. Understand that. When we talk about the Black Panthers, understand the logic that you don't leave any of your weapons at home if you're fighting a real fight. Now, if you just want to get slaughtered, you're going to get slaughtered in the ballot box soon. But anyway, I, I, I won't, um, because again, I just got this. It just came out. So I'm, I know what I'm going to be spending a great deal of time in the middle of the night. Uh, between the next few days doing is, is reading this book but this is what um he says let me see if i can get a good phrase to let us understand here um he says uh because i didn't mark anything yet even a mainstream texas historian felt compelled to acknowledge that washington he often talks about countries by their capital so he's talking about you know washington dc of course quote, never formally adopted the policy of massacre authorized, end quote, by Texas, where it was, quote, permissible to kill all males 12 years and older, end quote, by the 1850s, and where the vaunted Texas Rangers were little more than death squads of a type that came to characterize U.S. foreign policy by the mid-20th century. Conflict over Indian policy generated momentum for Texas's second secession following the bolting from Mexico in 1836. Remember, Texas comes into existence when them white boys run out there and lop off the top third of Mexico and call themselves a country and call themselves Texians. And then they get in trouble 
And then they bring in the United States. And then they teach the little school children, including probably that little child that got the monkey certificate, to remember the Alamo. Yeah, let's remember it. Not from the social structure, but the governance structure. Because them was people who had us enslaved in there that got killed by Santa Ana and the army. And if you get in your right mind, you wouldn't be cheering for Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett and them. But you know, we was growing up, they had us cheering for them. It took us a little while to understand we cheering for the wrong side. And if you think that's just ancient history, more people probably going to know what happened between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard than are going to watch the hearings for the January 6th commission when they come up. And if you remember, Johnny Depp played Tonto in the Long Ranger. You, you, they keep making the same damn story. Gerald continues, he says, he says, this time the conflict came with a secession from America itself in 1861. Texas entered the U.S. as the 28th state in 1845, this after existence as an independent republic, and part of the deal was control of its vast public lands, providing local authorities with more leeway in routing indigenous in comparison to other states. In other words, the rule in Texas was kill all the Indians. Gerald is like, even, even the United States didn't say kill all the Indians. Yeah, but Texas, murder is the case. Murder just wasn't the case that they gave me. Murder, murder is the case that made me. Texas is about murder. The Texas Rangers were murderers. Go ahead. Dude, make make the a gun, right? Do this with your hand, and then flip it, flip it. Does that look like the state of Texas? Oh, Texas, the Panhandle show is. <laughs> wow, wow, and all the stories about killing. Marty Robbins, out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. You're a colonizer. And by the end of it, you shooting. Hell, y'all even pull Ray Charles into this Willie Nelson. There were seven Spanish angels in the altar of the sun. <laughs> what y'all like shooting? Y'all always shooting somebody in Texas. Meanwhile, Black people in Texas, what you trying to do in Texas? I'm just trying to rebuild my family. Really? Well, I heard that song and I like that. Play that song again. Okay, now we're going to take it from you. Yeah, but this ain't a song about killing. What song is that? There's a yellow rose in Texas. <laughs> yellow rose? Hmm, can you get yellow from white? No, but you can get it from black. That song wasn't about a black woman. You better go listen to the lyrics that I am bound to see. She's the sweetest rose of color this soldier ever knew. Sweetest rose of color. Yeah. Play the banjo slowly. Wait, play the banjo? Mm-hmm. I'm going back to Georgia to find my Uncle Joe. <laughs> Are these white people or black people? <laughs> you talking about shooting people? No, I'm just trying to find my family, man. The Civil War is over. I just want to find my family. And them Negroes that fought their way into electoral strength in Texas that drove them white boys out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party, which is now the White Nationalist Party, they didn't, they didn't stop because they, in, they encountered temporary defeat. Let's just bring in Octavia Butler again. Monday night, we're going to get into this. The first lines she writes in Earthseed, the books of the living, the first lines, in other words, of the parable of the sower by Lauren Oya. Olamina, Oya, Orisha, Oya, Oya, the water, Oya, the river, Oya, 
she says, Prodigy is, this is when she's writing in 2024, right? The beginning, because this, this novel is set 2024, 2025, 2026, 2027. We're going to get to 2027 on Monday night, and then we'll continue. This, in other words, that's the decade we in a couple of years from now, not even a couple of years from, uh, from, from now. She writes and says, her, her protagonist, Lauren Olamina, Prodigy is, at its essence, adaptability and persistent positive obsession. Without persistence, what remains is an enthusiasm of the moment. Without adaptability, what remains may be channeled into destructive fanaticism. Without positive obsession, there is nothing at all. Let's go back through that very quickly. Prodigy is at its s prodigy. In other words, wow, this is kids a prodigy. This kid is, a, you know, this, this young person really knows how to do this. You can really drain the three pointer. You know what I mean? You, you, LeBron James, the first billionaire. How'd you get to be a billionaire? Playing ball. I'm a ball player, but I'm smart. I parlayed it into it. yes, but the social structure, which thrives on absorbing violence in even its rituals, its cultural meaning making. What do you mean? Well, you know, the violence of sports. Really? Yeah. I mean, all sports aren't violent. No, but look at the way certain sports are configured. Francis Cress Welsing used to talk about little white balls and big brown balls. Class plays a role. Class gives you access to the little white balls. Golf, baseball, you know, tennis, not a white ball, but you get the point. Uh, but your ticket out of the hood is the one that costs the least amount of money to play. It's got the most violence in it. Football. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, ice hockey got. And then that's a little black puck, too. Anyway, man, I'm not going to get into that because, you know, some of y'all going to say, oh, Francis, Chris Wilson, that's that hotel stuff. Don't you ever disrespect Francis Wilson until you go to medical school, until you do your residency, until you deal as a child psychiatrist for decades with young black children in D.C., until you deal with their parents and help them come. And, and when you fix your mouth to say hotel, but I know ain't nobody here going to do that because y'all actually can read and write some Egyptian language now and know what hotep means. People calling people hoteps are usually some of the most ignorant people and also the people in pain. So I got a lot of room for the people in pain, which I'm going to stop doing is disrespecting your ancestors by using uh, a, a word from the oldest language in human in human experience, reducing it to a pejorative. Anyway, so but I'm not going to go down the road of, you know, Francis Cress Welsing's metaphors, although I think she spent an entire lifetime earning her capacity to create these metaphors. And if her name was Sigmund Freud, you wouldn't blink twice. Anyway, prodigy is, at its essence, adaptability and persistent positive obsession. Well, think about artists. Think about anybody who does something so much that they just become incredibly great at it. And if it's the kind of thing the world wants to pay for to see, which with, with us usually involves violence. You know, I mean... It's like, yeah, you know, if you rapping about violence, you get paid. Do you think drill music would still be a huge thing if they weren't getting money? This is the whole connect. In other words, you want to hear that. Just like you said, bro, you know, play that. Uh, y'all understand all that other stuff, but uh, it's cool. Play that, play that violent stuff so I can say the N-word. And if y'all get mad, it's in a song. It's in a song. Yeah, yeah, it's the same mentality they had, a little, they had a white girl give, gave that little black boy the monkey certificate. I didn't know it was racist. No, you didn't. You didn't have to know because the whole thing is racist. So when you see him, you don't see your son. You see somebody else's monkey. So therefore, give him the monkey. I mean, he is a monkey and he's very entertaining. But the point is that adaptability and persistent positive obsession what she's saying there is what looks to be extreme genius isn't just talent it's that you did this all the time she wrote all the time 
You played basketball all the time. You rapped all the time. Shout out to the Roots crew. The Roots picnic is today in Philly. Wish I could be there because Black Thought is one of my all-time favorites. Shit, I wish I could, you know, I'd love to be there on, on, on the plateau listening to Black Thought and them. But, you know, when you do something all the time, you should get good at it. Right? But she says, Prodigy is at, at, at its essence adaptability and persistent positive obsession. Adaptability. They took all the uh, musical instruments out to schools. No problem. I'm going to scratch up your records, Pop, but I'm going to use them on Mom's turntables. We're going to create something that everybody's going to be singing, whatever we come up with. But you're adapting to your circumstances and you're practicing all the time. She says, next sentence, without persistence, what remains is an enthusiasm of the moment. So every generation as France Fanon says, out of relative obscurity must identify its mission, fulfill it, or betray it. But what gives that the momentum of force of power is the momentum of memory. If you don't remember what happened in the generations before you and apply those lessons to what you're doing now, you lose the momentum of memory. Individuals don't beat institutions. She's saying here, without persistence, what remains is an enthusiasm of the moment. One of the things we're creating in this space, and we're not the first to do it, but we are among the vanguard in this moment where technology enables us to do it. And a whole pandemic drove us inside long enough to allow us to repurpose our time by taking the choice away from us. And now that the choice to do other things is being restored. What we're seeing is what remains and what now is building is the realization that I don't want to walk away from that clean glass of water. In fact, I'm going to get my friends. I'm going to get my cousin. I'm going to get my, you know what it does to us, y'all, when we see children in here, when we see elders in here, when we see people commenting, because that's really what we want, is people connecting their memory to the momentum of what we do now. What she says in that second sentence, without persistence. In other words, this is not easy work because the noise is coming from all directions. The noise is coming from all directions. Without persistence, what remains is an enthusiasm of the moment. Joe Biden, enough. When is it going to stop? Joe, Joe. The people who got piece of the story say, but weren't you, didn't you sign on the crime bill? Okay, he did, yeah. But when's the last time that we talked about Amadou Diallo, Patrick Dorisman? I'm thinking about the New Yorkers. We ain't got, I mean, when's that? I mean, and then, you know, people saying, well, you know, black people killing black people. Yeah, but when enough became enough, you saw black people stop shooting each other. Do you remember 1992? Yeah. What happened in 1982? Rodney King verdict. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Remember the Crips and the Bloods called a truce? And the Mexicans, they all called a truce? And the streets of LA, they tied the blue and red rags together. I mean, you don't remember that? Well, these gangs kind of kill each other. Yeah, part of it is we don't have a momentum of memory. There are no good guys and bad guys. There's only us. <laughs> That's what... <laughs> Octavia Butler. My point is that the choices we make direct what we do. And when you lose the momentum of the victories you've had in the past and the lessons you've learned from the failures, we end up repeating mistakes and it just demoralizes us. Again, the second sentence, without persistence, what remains is an enthusiasm of the moment. Of course, you're going to be demoralized because you don't have to remember it. You don't even remember, I mean, how many people remember Robert Williams and what they did and the reaction to it? Next sentence, without adaptability, what remains may be channeled into destructive fanaticism. I read that and I think about the clash of ideologies. We just saw the California 
reparations uh, commission, state legislature's reparations committee. And of course, shout out to um, leader Weber, Dr. Weber, Shirley Weber, for decades, professor of uh, Africana studies, San Diego State University, now the leader of the Democratic Party and the California state legislature and the supermajority, which allows them to actually even put together a reparation study commission. Uh, the report, 500 pages, I have not read all of it. I've read most of it. And it's in terms of structure, it's not different than previous statements of harm in terms of structure. By that, I mean, it's basically the first volume of the interim report. The, the next one I'm really looking forward to, because that's when it's going to be where the rubber meets the road. That's the recommendations of what to do about it. The first one is basically the litany of abuses. And we've seen variations on the litany of abuses uh, before. We charged genocide 1951. Um, between 1951 and today, all of the reparations work. The reparation works that preceded it from the 19th century. The litany of abuses is there. This is one of the most uh, kind of, let me not do it comparatively. Let me just say this. This is one of the longest compilations of litany of abuses. That's I'll say that charitably because you know me, I read the footnotes. And first of all, what I was, I mean, I just a couple of quick reactions. We're going to talk about because all this happened between me since we saw each other last week. We all saw each other. And again, you know, one of the things I love about this in class space that we have is that it allows us, and Prof, you made this observation first, really. It allows us to process some of what has happened in the intervening week. And of course, in, in narrative and newbie year, we're building a much more kind of I want to say it's, it's no differently structured, but what it is, it's it's more of a guided and kind of collaborative space where we got more deliberate kind of practice. You know, I mean, we don't have to do everything over here. This is kind of a, a front porch kind of thing. But what what really struck me was that the interim report writers and editors were all from were all either deputy attorney generals or program. It was one research program specialist and the rest of them and a press secretary in the state of California, the rest of them were deputy attorney generals. So the lawyers wrote the, and then, okay, well, let me look at the interim report supporting contributors, law clerk, law clerk, law clerk, law clerk, legal secretary, law clerk, deputy attorney general, deputy attorney general, deputy attorney general, deputy law clerk, law clerk, legal secretary, law clerk, not one person in the interim report writing contributors wasn't, either a lawyer, a law clerk, legal scholar, legal secretary, legal support. I said, what the hell? So now I know where this is going. The expert consultants, there were four. Two of them, Sandy Darity and Kristen, Kirsten Mullen, are the ones who are shaping intellectual thrust of this California reparation study. And at that point, that's when I say, oh, I see why these footnotes look what, how they look. This is a report written by people who don't know anything about the reparations history, history of reparations movement, the conceptual arguments, discussions, consensus building that has been made in the reparations movement. And they're probably doing the best they can in good faith to construct this. But their lawyers writing this and they're being they're being informed by uh, a quartet of expert consultants, two of which have one of the most limited straight jacket concepts of reparations across the whole array of the reparations debate. Don't make them bad people. Doesn't make them good people. But let it's time to be smart. See, one of the reasons we have narrative and Nubia is so that we can spend time in conversation with ourselves, not just our living selves, but our historical selves. And so that we can plan a better future and execute a better future by having the momentum of memory. So I'm reading through the report and I'm hearing people say, this is the most comprehensive. Don't do that. Because as my mama would say, you open in your mouth, put your brain on display. All of us do it every time we open our mouths. 
you should just say, I don't know. You should say, I've never seen. But for people who know the long reparations movement, and I ain't just talking about the United States, I'm talking about globally, but I'm also talking in the United States. You understand that, okay, I'm reading this and what was clear to me is y'all ain't solved the remedy phase. And everybody out there who was saying, yeah, they did. There's going to be documentation. In fact, in the if you read the executive summary, let me pull up the executive summary here just for a second, because the last uh, page 24, the executive summary, they've got this thing called the California African-American Freedmen's Freedmen Affairs Agency. The recommendation to the legislature is to establish a cabinet level secretary position over an African-American slash Freedmen Affairs Agency tasked with implementing the recommendations of this task force. The role of the agency is to identify past harms, prevent future harm, work with other state agencies and branches, so forth and so on. Okay. Slow this way down. There is enslavement and there are the afterlives of enslavement, the impact, these two things together. That is a field of violence that we can safely kind of describe as harm, okay? That harm did not begin in the Western Hemisphere. It begins in Africa at the behest of Europeans coming to Africa. Well, Africans sold Africans into slavery. That's right. Say it again. Africans sold Africans into slavery. Into what? Slavery. Okay, slavery. Where'd that come from? Well, everybody in the world has slavery. Okay, slow down, slow down. Your brain on display. Let's do a little brain surgery. What is slavery? I mean, everybody knows what slavery is. Okay, see? Slow down. You gotta, sl you gotta slow down. It takes time. Wait, what now? What? It takes time. What did Octavia Butler say? She say, prodigy is at its essence, adaptability and persistent positive obsession. Oh, I didn't finish the last sentence. So you're going to be obsessed with this? Nobody should be obsessed about anything. Well, you're obsessed about whether the Warriors going to beat the Celtics or vice versa. You're obsessed about, you know, who was right, Will Smith or Chris Rock. I mean, you're obsessed about uh, them stealing the 2024 election and the Supreme Court decisions coming down the pike and whether or not this is January 6th, but you're not obsessed about that. You're obsessed about Megan the Stallion and, you know, her getting shot and you should be obsessed about that because cats got guns, but more importantly, what made you shoot her? I mean, this is the thing behind this is what James McBride is getting in into Deacon King Kong. I mean, what's the motivation behind it, right? So, I mean, you're upset. So, so it's not that you're not obsessed. It's just that you're obsessed about what you want to be obsessed about. And you even think that why you want to be obsessed about it was your idea. This is why we had to have a social structure category. Who are you to other people? And why do you think your obsessions are ones that you would have had had it not been for the framework? Again, Parable of the Soul is going to help us think through that. But this last sentence that she writes, I think is more germane to what I'm about to make. She says, without positive obsession, there is nothing at all. There are some things you should be obsessed with. And when it comes to reparations, you should be obsessed with knowing more about what that conversation is and what we should be thinking about and then acting on to get. So this California African-American Freedman Affairs Agency, I said, when I saw Freedman Affairs, I said, ah, oh, shit, the poison that invaded the top echelons. And these lawyers that wrote it, who don't know anything about it, who just try to do the best they can, who have been lobbied and pushed, and then they got this little group of consultants who got their own narrow version of reparations, who have choked off the momentum of memory and therefore forestalled the possibility of breaking open this conversation. They didn't snuck this in here. Remember, the harm is enslavement and its afterlives, the impact. 
Guess who's impacted by enslavement? Everybody black. Well, them people weren't here. And, and of course, now that's why I'm looking for volume two of the preliminary uh, report because volume two is how they're going to propose solutions. And that's when it's going to fall apart. <laughs> oh, what did Black Thought, Black Thought say? Yeah, things fall apart when the center can't hold. And of course, he is quoting there, of course, um, Chinua Achebe, 1957 book, Things Fall Apart, who is quoting the poet. I forget whether it's Eliot or is he, uh, the falconer uh, circling and circling, the birds circling, and then uh, the falconer calls, and then the bird flies away because the center cannot hold. You know, he said, you know, things fall apart. I thought I told y'all. <laughs> black, th black Thought trying to tell y'all. Black Thought, when I hear Black Thought, I hear somebody who is read, who is studying, who is perpetually in motion. You know what I'm saying? When I hear him, you know, when he say, um, hmm, when he said, what is it? Anyway, I'm just thinking about two, 215. Anyway, I, I could get into Black Thought. But anyway, the point is this. The Reparations Commission has narrowed the possibility of reparations. And when these white people show up with better records than you, there's going to be some show up that way. And you ain't got no records or you got a broad concept. You say, I could trace my answers. Can you trace yours? And, th and this commission can't help you. That's when the rubber's going to meet the road. But let me let me just go through this very quickly. Um, what we're talking about is, and I'm and I'm not saying that to trash the California Reparations Commission at all. I'm not trashing it at all. I think it's better than no commission. I think it's a step forward. I think it's progress. But I also think that we have to be better. We have to be smarter and that we have been better and smarter. And when we cut ourselves off from the momentum of memory, we lose the possibilities because we understand that this violence we're dealing with, Oh, gun violence got to stop. Yeah. Gun violence is part of the field of violence, part of the ground of violence to, to again, generate that, that, that metaphor that Octavia Butler uses in the parables series. It is part of a larger field of violence. And what has to be dismantled is a social structure that engenders violence. Because as long as that's in place, this is the problem. Now, how does that relate? Let me tie it all together. We kind of bring it in for, for a moment. This what these wider valences of violence, we're, we're focused on the local, the shootings. Buffalo, Tulsa, Buffalo, Tulsa, Uvalde, Buffalo, Tulsa, Uvalde. I mean, you name it. Someplace today since we've been here because these shootings are going on every day. Well, you know, we're in month three now of the Russia-Ukraine war. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about that. It didn't stop because, again, as Octavia Butler says in her framing quake, if you don't remember, then that momentum gets lost. And we're not obsessed anymore with it. Because, you know, since then, a whole lot of stuff has happened. There's been the NBA playoffs. I mean, after all, my God. Biden <laughs> is consumed with this war. Has to be. Why? Because what's at risk is this hierarchy that has been set up. We're not going to get into that today, but I'm going to mention it in the context of the jobs numbers, for example. People said, look at the job numbers. Uh, they say they're better. I mean, Biden, is he going to win a re-elect? Why are y'all looking at this local stuff as a local phenomenon? The gas prices are up. Yeah, do you know how companies work? In fact, uh, the Financial Times Thursday, that same one where Elon Musk tell everybody to go back to work, Jamie Dimon on the front page of Financial Times, Jamie Dimon from um, Morgan Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase saying, there's a hurricane going to bear down on the global economy. What? There's a hurricane? What? What does that mean? Oh, we're about to be the last last sentence in the article. 
There were some bright clouds for the U.S. Diamond said, including healthy consumer spending, plentiful jobs, and rising wages. I lied. Two sentences. Next sentence. The banking industry is in great shape, he added. <laughs> what? Bruh, what you talking now? Meanwhile, you, not just the banking industry, the back of the first section of the Financial Times Thursday, Tula Oil slash Capricorn. You know the drill. The Africa for the Africa focused exploration and production groups are combining in a near merger of equals that reflects their respective oil reserves. Two of the big companies getting oil out of Africa just merged so they can make all the money in the world. The big read on Thursday, in fact, asked this question. Oh, come on, son. Where is it? Come on, come on. Here we go. Because guess what? Africa is doing while they in there trying to suck all the oil out. Here's the question. Can Africa grow without fossil fuels? Whoo. <laughs> Jamie Diamond saying we're making all the money. We good. But a hurricane is coming. Who are you trying to scare, Jamie? What, what you worried about, Jamie? Oh, political instability. See, again, this reparations commission. Cut the check. Cut the check. We got cut. No, 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 no. There are three things at work. There's the politics in this situation. There is the um, the kind of intellectual work or cultural piece in the situation. And then there's the legal framework. The reparations report written by lawyers. They're operating in a very narrow legal universe. What may be able to sustain court challenge? That's why they say, well, if we use lineage instead of race, we can't use race in California because y'all voted to take race out of any public policy making, which means you can organize and overvote that. I'm tired. I can't overvote it. Octavia Butler then told y'all fatigue is not an option. Positive obsession. You, got, you think them people in Texas, the first time they lost in court in the 1930s and 40s, the white primary defeated them. They said, oh, I guess we just have to just take this L in Texas and this murder capital of, a, of the Western. No! Your ass is able to play for the damn Houston Rockets and the San Antonio Spurs because the black people didn't give up. If that's the thing you're into. But the point is that the reason the lawyers wrote this framework that they have in this reparations thing is because they're being guided by the legal framework. That's different than a political framework. Politically, you can overwhelm that, which is why I'm looking at Darity and Mullen and them like, y'all, because, because you would, because, you know, Sandy Darity is good, brother. I don't have any problems with Sandy Darity. You're not part of the reparations movement. You're an academic and you're going to try to, you know, jump in the momentum of memory. And guess who else wasn't? These ADOS people, and now I know they done fractured in all these other acronyms and alphabet soup. This ain't coming for them either. I'm saying, I'm glad y'all here. After all, Octavia Butler tells us at the beginning of the parable of the sower, what without persistence, what remains is an enthusiasm of the moment. So you see people charged up now like, yeah, the reparations was dead before we came, and the young people are in it now. And that, mm-hmm. So what was before you? Nothing. You're putting your brain on display because without adaptability, in other words, without us listening to each other, in other words, without us getting that momentum of memory, in other words, without us having the arguments and debates, but deepening our understanding and then moving forward together, I tell you, brother, without adaptability, what remains may be channeled into destructive fanaticism. I testified at the commission and them Negroes came for me in the chat like I couldn't even spell reparations. And I'm saying this is a, forgive me, this is my personal flaw see the thing about ignorance to me i find ignorance fascinating the thing people get mad about i'll be ready to laugh 
Because I understand. And then I get very sad. Why? Because I know that that's coming from the pain. Y'all attacking me because you owed something. Guess what? You are absolutely owed something. And guess something else. When we read Parallel Story, we find that out. You ain't owed shit. <laughs> Do you understand why Laura is challenging her father? If there's a God, why in the hell are we out here fighting for water? And water more expensive than gas. And it's coming. She writes this book in the early 90s. By then, she's an established writer. She has broken through that poverty. You see detail in, 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 in Linnell George's trip through the Octavia Butler archives. She's broken through because she's got this positive obsession. I mean, Octavia Butler, prof. You, you, she whispered in your ear strip. This woman, was, she's obsessed from time. She's a little girl. And it's all in her archive. I'm like, how the hell you save 9,000 items of anything in damn near 400 boxes? Linnell George, some kind of way, sat with that stuff for years and said, I'm going to pull this out. I'm gonna pull this out. And what you see is from the time she, which is really on her mother and her grandmother. You got to shout out these black women. You know what I'm saying? And her family, her uncles and them. I mean, you see it in there. That's positive obsession. I ain't mad at Adolf's family based on black Americans. All the, you just got to work a little harder. Because otherwise, when you burn out, see, I knew Queen Mother Audley Moore. Queen Mother Moore was a long distance runner. You could have sat with Queen. If Queen Mother Moore was alive today, I wouldn't be talking crazy like this. Somebody would have put a laptop on her. We'd have her in Nubia. And she reminded her, if you, if you want to see oppression, she's a communist in the 30s and 40s. There are lessons to be learned. You know what I'm saying? This one, and then she would tell y'all, okay, y'all got your report? Yeah, yeah. Here's what's going to happen next. Oh, huh? Yeah. And because you don't remember, when they punch you in your chest, your whole chest going to cave in. <laughs> Go ahead, Prop. You want to say something. Somebody that actually literally sat in Harlem with Queen Mother Moore. Yes, ma'am. And I, I think about this, this positive obsession that you're talking about. There were, um, I think, 232 mass shootings in the United States this year. This year already. We, we heard about a handful on the heels of a leak of a possible overturning of Roe v. Wade, which was going to drive a lot of different people. I'm, I'm, this is a little conspiracy theory. A lot of people are gonna go to the polls in November because of that leaked uh, possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned because they were outraged. And then there were 232 mass shootings in this country. We didn't hear about any of them until recently. That's right. And then there is a whole ass war going on. I think uh, a whole another city within Ukraine. We don't hear about that. That was around the clock. Here's what I want to ask you, or or let us posit: Are our pot are our obsessions being curated for us? And if so, oh yes, of course. If so, what's our response to having our obsessions curated? How do we how do we break free from the media? I hate using these terms, but you know, they literally tell us what we should be paying attention to. That's right. And so I'm I'm grateful every time you open up that financial times, I like you got me with a subscription to it. <laughs> and, I, and you see, <laughs> it's right there. But see, prof, that's hey what car. That's my daddy. That's my daddy who never got a chance to go to high school because they drafted him and four of his brothers and stuck their asses in World War II out of East Tennessee. But my daddy brought the newspaper home every day. And here's the game. From the time I was younger than that little boy, they get a monkey certificate too. The newspaper is a puzzle. It, why, why is this story here? Why this story here? Put this in. So the people who report for the Five Times, 
they're not writing for us to have this conversation today. And so our response has to be solve the puzzle because they telling you in your face what they doing. Jamie Dimon got more money than God saying, I'm going to be fine. He said, a hurricane is coming. Use your common sense. Who's in the hurricane? Well, Octavia Butler <laughs> is telling you it's your black ass. <laughs> but because he just said that the banks are fine. And then in the same paper, they talk about oil speculation. And they got a long article saying, can Africa develop without by going green, by going to oil. And then you think to yourself, wait a minute, what do you, my daddy, what do these things got to do with each other? What do you say? But people, we we often consume things like it's just the story. No, we, the answer is, is so, yes, of course they're curating. And then we have to curate. I mean, it's right there for us. And, 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 and so what we develop out of us curating, again, this is the value. Not of all of our sessions, all of our time, every day with you on Sirius, every day, wherever any of us are making this work on the weekends with, with in class. And then really in Nubian narrative where we have this now institutional base where everybody can come in, bring in our bricks is us curating. Our bricks are ourselves. And so the answer to it is we build the world we want. This is the governance. We build on our common humanity. That's what Octavia Butler writes about over and over again. She even puts the words in the mouths of aliens so we can get past that. In fact, she talks about the fact that, oh wait, I should, I should, I should read this because again, people say, well, she's beyond race. And she, you know what? We could talk about what Octavia Butler has said, or we could just listen to Octavia Butler. I mean, it's not that hard. She said, let me see if I can find it quickly. Um, no, this is the all white. Okay, here we go. She said, some writers have gotten around the need for research by setting their stories in distant egalitarian futures when cultural differences have dwindled and race has ceased to matter. Shout out to Star Trek. <laughs> Octavia Butler said, I created a future like this in my novel Pattern Master. Though I did not do it to avoid research. Ooh. Pattern Master takes place in a time when psionic ability is all that counts. People who have enough of that ability are on top, whether they're male or female, black, white, or brown. People who have none are slaves. In this culture, a black, like the novel's main woman character, would, except for her coloring, be indistinguishable from characteristics of any other race. Using this technique could get a writer accused of writing blacks as though they were whites in copper tone. And it could be a lazy writer's excuse for doing just that. But for someone who has a legitimate reason for using it, a story that requires it, it can be a perfectly valid technique. What she's writing about is hierarchy. And she never ran from being a black woman. In fact, she ran to being a black woman. You read through that archive, or at least that curation that Linnell George leads us through, and then you read what Octavia Rutler wrote, or you listen to what she said in all the speeches that you can find, you see her always, her blackness is there. And that's why the introduction to the parable of the sower written by N.K. Jameson, another black woman in her 40s, who said, this is my third time reading it. In my 20s, I was I was at the Million Man March, registering voters. I was black power. And so it, it hit me one way. When I was in my 30s, I was in my graduate writers workshops and I was wrestling with it a little differently. Now I'm in my 40s. I see something very different now. She said writers often go in threes. Two people don't recognize the pattern. 
Four, they get bored with it. Three is about just right. It was the third time through. She said, now nah, I'll write another introduction when I'm in my 50s and see what she says to me then. In other words, <laughs> it, but that takes time. Cut the check. You don't know about So, because what we're having curated for us looks quick. Tonight on the news, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Okay, cut. Okay, two weeks from now. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Mm -mm, mm -mm. You want it fast. It don't come fast. Because once you slow down, like any athlete will tell you or musician, once you have mastered the rhythm, once you have mastered the craft, have you ever heard an athlete say, y'all, the game slowed down? Mm. Why did the game slow down? Because you mastered the craft. And now, to everybody watching, it's fast as hell, but to you, it's slow as hell. Pick and roll. Okay, I know this shit. It's three. I go ahead and blink this block. Okay, cut. Then back door cut. No look pass. That wasn't a no look pass. I saw that cat running that way 0.2 seconds ago. But for you, it was no time. For me, it was like slow as hell. In other words, but that comes with mastery. That comes with, so to, to, to put that in very real time in this week, in a few minutes, in fact, by the time many folks who are not yet in Nubian narrative and who are not, not in Nubia yet, see this? Hopefully Coco Golf is running, running off with the French uh, Open. She lost. Damn it! I ain't mad at her. Was it close? No. Strange I ain't mad at her. I'm still not mad at her because that 18-year-old sound like Arthur Ashe the other night. But in order for me to say that 18-year-old sounds like Arthur Ashe, I got to know who Arthur Ashe is and what Arthur Ashe did. And to know that Coco Golf is not Arthur Ashe. This ain't the 60s. This ain't Davis Cup. This ain't Wimbledon. This ain't Tidy Whitey's and Stan Smith tennis shoes. <laughs> but it's 2022, and what she says can go over the whole world while she's saying it. And you don't have to have closed circuit television or you ain't got to wait for the replay or you ain't got to wait for the newspaper the next morning, the Amsterdam News or the New York Times. Did he win? Did he lose? No. In that real moment, you just informed me, I, I'm sorry she lost. However, Coco Golf at 18 years old, this child knows she's playing a long game. Last week when she won and she wrote on the camera, no guns, PC wrote, she writing on the camera. You know what she said? Coco Golf said, I'm in Europe. Everybody's watching. I'm in the world. And I felt like that gave me a platform to say some things. Now, there's going to be some hillbillies. God bless y'all. Because you know what Robert Williams would do with your ass. It's going to be some hillbillies that say, she's a traitor. She ain't in the United States and she's critiquing the United States. Mm-hmm. Here go your ancestor right here from Negroes with Guns. I just like reading it because it's so funny. Remember when... Uh, they went to protect the black people in uh, when when the Klan was marching. And let me see if I could find it quick. I don't know because I, I I didn't mark it because I don't mark in these old books because you know this is kind of a collector's item. Let me see. Uh, yeah, <laughs> one of my favorites. So these are your ancestors, those people who might jump on Coco Golf because she was in Europe talking about y'all. Uh, G -G 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 -G. No, I'm not gonna be able to find it. That's that's. Oh, this is after, hold on, hold on. Um, militancy struggle for, oh, this is the, mm, the two little boys where the white girl went home and said they tried to kiss her and then that set it off. You arrest the little boys and, oh man, I'm not going to be able. 
to find it. That's just too bad because it's one of my, if I just be quiet for 30 seconds, I will find it. But um, let me see. Did you do 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 do? Oh, that's a yeah. That's okay. That's okay because the the point I'm trying to make is remember when the white boy showed up and then the brothers showed up with here it is here it is of course you know it's gonna find it. All right, here we go. He says uh, the picket line continued on Sunday on our way to the swimming pool because when they had the segregated pool they're gonna integrate the pool and then a clan gonna defend the pool. On Sunday, on our way to the swimming pool, we had to pass through the same intersection, US 74 and US 601. There were about two or 3,000 people lined along the highway. Two or three policemen were standing at the intersection directing traffic, and there were two policemen who had been following us from my home. Think about now the NRA met in Houston last week. Sylvester Turner's named police chief. He said, you're going to be outside protesting. Dude, you the police chief. Them your patterolers standing there protecting these white boys in the auditorium from there. There was a crowd outside protesting and inside they in there swearing their loyalty to death and violence. But you see, you got to be careful about that. Because again, these are some of the same people that would call Coco Golf. You're not American. Well, that ain't Coco Golf. Coco Golf is not really worried about that. I'm coming back to Coco in a minute. But she says, the crowd started screaming. They said that an N-word had hit a white man. They were referring to me. <laughs> they were screaming, kill the ends, kill the ends, pour gasoline on the ends, burn the ends. We were still sitting in the car. The man who was driving the stock car got out of the car with a baseball bat and started walking toward us. And he was saying, "In what did you hit me for? I didn't say anything to him. Remember uh, Lester Maddox, Heart of Atlanta Motel, the Supreme Court case in Georgia where they want to integrate the, uh, the restaurant and then integrate the hotel. And then the white boy showed up and Lester Maddox came and burst into the national imagination with that two by four he used to carry around. That's kind of stuff that in popular white culture, they had us as children saying we should be uh, uh, aspiring to have, walk around with a two by four. Why? Because they had a white boy in Tennessee named Buford Pusser. They made a whole movie, Walking Tall. What you don't realize is that damn two by four is what they used against black people. So the white boy come up to Robert Williams with the two by four. He continues and says, we were just looking there at him. He came up close to our car within an arm's length with the baseball bat. But I still hadn't said anything. We didn't move in the car. What they didn't know that it was that we were armed. Under North Carolina state law, it is legal to carry firearms in your automobile so long as these firearms are not concealed. I had two pistols and a rifle in the car. When this fellow started to draw back his baseball bat, I put an Army 45 up in the window of the car and pointed it right into his face, and I didn't say a word. He looked at the pistol and he didn't say anything. He started backing away from the car. Somebody in the crowd fired a pistol and the people started again to scream hysterically, kill the N-words, kill the N-words, pour gasoline on the N-words. The mob started to throw stones on top of my car. So I opened the door of the car and uh, put one foot up on the ground and stood up in the door holding an Italian carbine. At this time, three policemen had been standing about 50 feet away from us while we kept waiting in the car for them to come and rescue us. When they... Then when they saw that we were armed and the mob couldn't take us, two of the policemen started running. One ran straight to me and he grabbed me on the shoulder and said, surrender your weapon, surrender your weapon. I struck him in the face and knocked him back away from the car and put my carbine in his face and I told him that we were not going to surrender to a mob. Now, if you don't think what's coming doesn't look closer to what I'm reading right now, you're not paying attention. You watching somebody curate for you 
but you already know what I'm not talking about everybody's politically conscious. I'm not talking about everybody's organized. I'm not talking about the 2022 version of the Panthers. No, I'm talking about people who have had enough. The, the Crips and the Bloods were not politicized, but after that Rodney King verdict, they tied their rags together. That was yesterday. That was yesterday. That ain't even that ain't even 100 years ago or 50 or 60 years ago. Continue, he says, the other policeman who had run around the side of the car started to draw his revolver out of the holster. He was hoping to shoot me in the back. <laughs> they didn't know that we had more than one gun. I love how Robert Williams tells this story. He says, one of the students who was 17 years old that is a year younger than Coco Golf is now. Put a 45 in the policeman's face and told him that if he pulled out his pistol, he would kill him. See, the brother who was on the police force and involved, whose wife died in that school, who was stopped by his brother and sister officers, do you really think? that if and when this happens again, that that cop is not going to pull his gun out, that those parents aren't going to rush y'all. See, y'all not paying attention to how this works, but we're going to get into parable of the sower next week and get a little clue. But, but uh, let me finish with this. He says, the policeman started putting his gun back into the holster and backing away from the car, and he fell into the ditch. Final paragraph, he says, there was a very old man, an old white man out in the crowd, and he started screaming, and crying like a baby. And he kept crying. And he said, trigger warning, children, put your fans over your ears because I want to read this straight. And he said, God damn, God damn, what is this God damn country coming to? That the niggers have got guns. The niggers are armed and the police can't even arrest them. <laughs> he kept crying and somebody led him away. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that white man all y'all in there thinking y'all is gonna take these young cats out here making this drill music y'all gonna keep on <laughs> now I, I wanted to mention that in terms of Coco Golf for this reason some of y'all gonna call Coco um, not y'all none of us some people in search Street will call her un-American because she was out there and, and made that a point internationally Coco Golf said this is my first election Coco Golf said I'm 18 years old they're not gonna take my right to vote and my daddy told, this is where I said, Arthur Ashe popped in my head the minute she said this where her daddy told her. She said, my daddy told me I could change the world with this racket. I said, this child right here, no shade on LeBron James, Colin Kaepernick, I ain't mad. Coco Golf, that's something Paul Robeson would have done. I'm going to go overseas. You reparations people think, oh, we're, we're foundational black Americans. Do you know how silly and stupid that is, in the context of the reparations move, the minute you cut your nose off to spite your face, Joe Biden is obsessed with Ukraine right now. So guess who he sent to talk, Professor Hunter? Guess who he sent to negotiate what's about to start Monday in L.A.? Something called a summit of the, of the, uh, the meeting of the governments of the Western Hemisphere. It's the, it's the American states. This will be the first U.S. president since Obama went to the meeting in 2016. What does that mean? They want they don't want Cuba to go. They don't want Venezuela to go. So Lopez Obrador in Mexico say, well, I may not come myself. I'll send it back. United States don't even hold that kind of weight no more. Do you understand? And now they worried about Colombia. Why? Because they got a president who they says a far ref president going to run for president of Colombia. He came in first in the elections last week. The vice presidential candidate on his ticket 
a 40-year-old black woman. In Colombia? Afro-Colombian. Brazil, number one population of Africans in the Western Hemisphere. United States, number two. But in Latin America, number two, Colombia, Afro-Colombians. In fact, I was just rereading an old piece called Slavery on the Spanish Frontier. The Colombian Choco, 1680 to 1810. They brought them Africans down there to mine with the, with the Native American, the indigenous people. The sister's name, oh my God, let me, I'm, we about to end. The sister's name, uh, Francia Marquez. Francia Marquez, about 50 million people in Colombia. About 10% of them are Afro-Colombian and their state in the Western part, Northwest. In fact, the major state for them uh, is 90 some percent African. It's the only state in Colombia that touches both the Pacific uh, and the Atlantic. I mean, no, it's right, it's right up in the curve by the, the Mediterranean. It goes into the Caribbean Sea. So it's on both sides, like Costa Rica. And say it again. And Panama. And Panama. That's right. And Panama. That's exactly right. The reason I brought all that up, though, is just to help us understand none of us anywhere in, who have been oppressed have made significant progress in the modern world system by turning inward and cutting off the relationships to other people. This is why this whole Darity uh, paradigm and this California stuff, I understand it's better than nothing, but that is a dead end. And guess who knows it? Everybody paying attention. I was going to say, they. this is how, you know, they cut us off from when Haiti, when the revolution happened, they didn't want, because the, the word spread, okay, this could happen everywhere. The goal is always to separate us from one another. That's why Dominicans walk around thinking that they're Spanish and, you know, you're on the same place with Haiti, Hispaniola, you're, but you're not like them. And Trujillo is always a divide and conquer. Why are we participating in it? And Be yeah, we don't remember. We don't yes. remember. But that's what we're doing right here. We're, yeah. we're doing it right here. I mean, and, and we're not alone, but I must say in conclusion for this morning that the thing that gives me such great hope, the thing that has allowed me as just a, a person to reset, because, you know, summertime for us, you know, we do our thing, we're gonna, we restore. Yeah, but this is the new normal. So not only is this the center going forward in the next months, oh, by the way, the runoff, the United States does not want Marquez and her running mate to win. So the second place person that finished, nobody got 50%, is the Trump of Colombia. So now Joe Biden and them, U.S., are going to put all their weight behind stopping. It's all, you already see the New York Times. I'm reading the articles where you already see them try to all oh, this radical left, and that's a radical right too. But the radical left... The meeting of the Organization of American States is in L.A. starting Monday. Biden's going to be there. They put in pressure already. And, and then the papers there, in fact, it was in the, you know, I like to read the white nationalist papers because, you know, they have, you know, have a state. They're trying to start. Don't, don't go, don't go. Don't come. The, uh, this was uh, the paper, one of the papers of record of white supremacy, just naked white supremacy. Uh, this was yesterday's Washington Times. Hemisphere leaders snub Biden summit. They trying to make it look like these radical Latin American ideological solidarity tilts foreign influence closer to China. China, what China got to do with Brazil and what China got to do with Venezuela? Well, you know what it's got to do with it? Guess who's coming in the Western Hemisphere funding roads and bridges and tunnels and that? <laughs> and they just try to bring their own NATO, China, and everyone's like, no, I'm not trying to be a part of it. So it's 
There's a lot of stuff happening. Right. And we in here talking about Johnny Depp and versus. We got to recurate. That, 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 that's all I'm saying. Pay attention to the, the meeting of Organization of American States this week in uh, Summit of the Americas in L.A. And pay attention to this sister Vasquez running in Colombia. Pay attention to how the United States deal with her. And if you don't think that has anything to do with what we're doing now, understand that client states is what props up those transfer resources. Everything from supply chain to international finance. He said, well, what's that got to do with me paying gas, uh, paying the price I pay for gas? It's all in the newspapers. Stop going to CNN like that's going to help you understand what's going on. They making money hand over fist and passing on any any deficits to you. And, and Ra Ron, when they have the panels on, you know, have black people that turn a phrase and are loop, loop. Uh, anyway, let me not do that. All no, right. no, no, you have to. No, no, because some of that's ignorance. We got to focus. Some Well, some of that's ignorance. I mean, and that's why, again, we... And it's hard for me too, Prof, because again, even with this reparations conversation, you know, people are just so convinced that they're right. And that type of, that type of, of, of sureness either comes from deep study or you don't know nothing. <laughs> and the society we're in to the point that you raised earlier, this is a society of perpetual bombardment to prevent deep study. Because these are same people again. I'm again just thinking about uh NK Jemison. NK Jemison, this is a woman who has won all the awards multiple times, brilliant sister, yeah. you know, who comes out of a family of artists. Her father was an accomplished artist. This is a woman who said, I was 20 years old, I was rah rise in the street, black power. NK Jemison went to the million man march to register voters. I mean, she, she said, I read parable of the sower i was like yeah man. then again i read it when i was right i said oh yeah. now i'm in my 40s i read it again i was like damn she said, now i gotta i'm gonna read it again in my 50s i'm gonna rewrite it. in other words if she's saying that what the hell is all this you know what you're talking about David? really in all love come on with us and spend some time <laughs> you know what i'm saying you'll be ashamed of yourself <laughs> And read those 15 chapters. I know it's like it's summer, it's the nice, the weather's nice and everything, but you know that's time to do it. We gotta knock the dust and the crust off of our off of, off of our minds. No question. Oh, let me ask you, let me ask you this, bro. Do you remember you probably seen it since then, but when you were in school getting a summer reading list? Yeah. Right. I don't know if they still do that a lot of places I because I, yeah. I just interviewed uh I, in fact let me just let me show it to you because I, I showed it before but I think I don't know if I showed this one. Um I just interviewed this lady, uh Dr. Natasha uh Wariku. She wrote a book called Race at the Top. This is the one about the Chinese and Indian and Korean students who were in this suburb and they're at the top public high school and they're knocking it out the frame in terms of their grades. And so the white parents, all these are affluent people, they all got money. The white parents are complaining. And so the white parents protested. Some of them joined the school board so they could vote to stop giving out homework to the elementary school students to make extracurricular activities and sports way more at school. And the Asian parents was like, what? So what the Asian, what the Asian parents do? They start taking, enrolling their children in night school and weekend math school and so they couldn't stop <laughs> and the white parents are complaining and these are white parents whose children go to princeton and brown but the asian students are ripping them. and the reason i interviewed natasha was i said 
because we know the affirmative action cases getting ready to come. They get ready in affirmative action. She understands that diversity is accepted by elite white people when it enhances whiteness. But the value is to stay on top. That's why she calls it race at the top. You can't get to the top of a pyramid. Somebody got to be on the bottom. This is what <laughs> Octavia Butler is saying. So you either build your own structure, which is what we're doing. Which is a circle. A circle. We're not even building triangles. A circle. Everybody's in it. Or you understand that when you get to the top in a white supremacist system, the white people will change the rules. These Chinese parents told her, they told us grades. We got the grades. <laughs> now you want to talk about football and rugby and, and soccer and shit. I never one of the Chinese ladies told her, she said, you know what sports is for exercise, not achievement. I mean, it was so crazy how to go. And so they just started ignoring it is fat. But I'm raising all that to say that, you know, we have to be different. And we and we're doing it. We know how to do it. We know how to do it. We invented, so, I mean, we, money we, we invented the pyramid. We built it. We, we we did the science behind it. We built it, and we understand that pyramids serve a purpose. But they, but we not, we're not, we're not a society on it. No, we're not worshiping pyramids. What we are, however, is understanding that what we thought about that enabled us to do that is what we can now think about in a different context with the momentum of memory to build the type of society which will benefit not just us. But look, all them children that wanted to play hip hop. It'd have been better if the DJ had just put on my man, our man Maurice White out of Memphis by way of Chicago in the stone. <laughs> but Earth Wind and Fire tried to tell her, you tell her it's in the stone. In other words, you're looking at the pyramid, but you need to look in the stone. In other words, it is the way of knowing that <laughs> you don't need to build that pyramid in 2022. You got to build something for 2022 that uses what you used to build the pyramid and apply it to now. Gun violence is not going to stop in the United States of America. It is a gunfighter nation. It is a settler colony. The thing you want to stop gun violence, the United States of America has to be remade or abandoned and structured into something else. But you, you could take all the guns. They'll get axe handles and two by fours and baseball bats. Because <laughs> the violence is here. That's right. In here. In here. Oh my God! In here for sure. Um, all right. Well. Well, we're in here and, uh, you know, pyramids were built to preserve uh, legacy and uh, as an honor, you know, it was honorific. It was not, you know, the thing upon which we tried to get to the top. It was a right. thing to honor and preserve. It wasn't a grain silo, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. No, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm sorry, Ben. Yeah. All right, uh, see the Nubians on uh, tomorrow with uh, Dr. Senyata Amen. Yeah, uh, I, I might try to get over there and see her. I, and I gotta, I got some catching up to do. I, I gotta start rereading the 15 chapters. So I'm when I get off this, that's what I'm gonna do for the rest of the day. I'm gonna be in community with with Octavia Butler. So I appreciate you for that. Dr. No, Trump. no, I appreciate you because listen, y'all, this was Professor Hunter's idea. And again, now we didn't start office hours with the intention of going this direction, it's being driven by us. So if you're not yet in the space, understand we're making this road by walking it to uh, evoke the Latin American educator, Paulo Freire. We make the road by walking and we're walking together. And it's not just, if it were just studying, it would be enough. Because then when we take, we take into our lives. and we. But it's not just studying. We're building a whole thing. So I know we, we're getting ready to wind up, but I'm excited about this. A children's Nubia. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah. 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 yeah.
I'm looking now. I'm looking in the chat that people are not playing. Love y'all. <laughs> Love y'all. <laughs>